my fellow Astorians. Welcome back. It's off-season time. It's, it's on season. For it's me. on season time. Yeah, if you're if you're more a fan of the books than the show, then <laughs> it's on season time. That's true. <laughs> if you're new here, I know we picked up a few new folks from Hot D coverage and just in general being out and about with the fandom getting its big boost during TV show season. There's always a few new folks coming in. Our book coverage is similar to our show coverage in that we look at the big picture and the small details and everything in between as best as we can. The ultimate goal here, it's to have fun, but it doesn't mean we don't treat the material with respect. Assuming you can call obsession respectful, <laughs> which I think you can. I don't know. Maybe it is. sometimes you definitely can't. But in this case, you can. With books, I think you can. With like being obsessed with another person, maybe that's, I don't know, that, that's, that's getting into a different sort of it's territory. Like that meme, I'm looking disrespectfully, I'm studying disrespectfully. <laughs> I am studying this material <laughs> disrespectfully. <laughs> with me, as always, is Ashea, and with us often is Sean. Hey, Sean, how you doing today? Hey, good. Good to be here. Yeah. Excited to get back to this lightning non-show deep dive. Yeah, yeah, right. We got so much to talk about. We have a huge world to explore. We've done a lot of exploring of it in the past and there's just so much more to explore. And the fandom, uh, it's bright. The future is bright. We've got good stuff coming, books and show. So it's time to uh, take stock and do what we can. A lot of times people ask me when a show over, it's like, well, what are you guys going to talk about? Like, <laughs> do you have no idea? Like, <laughs> yeah, Where to start? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, exactly. Like, it's not a matter of what to talk about. It's which of the many things will yeah. we choose this week? Infinite material. Yeah. yeah. And to help us with that, we typically, not always, but typically have votes on our Patreon site. This episode was picked over the life of Lena Valarian, the life of Harwin Strong, and the Basilisk Isles. So we'll be mixing in a variety of topics. Sometimes we'll have guests and the guest scheduling will preclude episode votes because we have to go by what's available for our guests and fit them in when we can. You're listening to this and you're like, man, I really wish I was listening to the life of Harwin Strong or the life of Lena or some other thing. Well, that's your incentive to become a patron because then you could vote and make that happen. Absolutely. Uh, you know. Listen to what she says. Yeah. It's true. But we will be back here on Sundays at three for the time being. For the duration, this will probably be our normal slot for years to come, except when the TV show or a TV show is on because looking ahead, there'll be other TV shows. Not soon, but eventually. And we'll play that by ear. But when there's not a TV show on Sunday at 3 p.m. seems to be where we've settled. We took another vote on whether we should go back to this time. And it was pretty overwhelming that y'all wanted to go back to this time slot. So works for us, works for you. Let's do it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There won't be spoilers in this episode. Speaking of House of the Dragon, what we're doing dealing with today is just after Aegon's conquest, just after Torrin Stark knelt to Aegon, to be specific, there was a little bit of conquest left to come after the North knelt. And we'll pick it up right there because the North participated in some of that. We'll go as far as we can. This episode has really grown in the telling as far as writing and, and thinking and imagining. This is one of those big imagination-filled episodes where we really connect a lot of dots with somewhat limited information. We'll frame it around the different Lords of Winterfell. They were the first Lords of Winterfell. Also, welcome back to the fold, our good friend Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. She took the show season off. Now she's back, raring to go with some great takes, great notes. Once again, her blog is goodqueenally with one L.tumblr.com. Latest post over there is what kind of relationship do you think Dunk had with Makar? That's a question she got from a reader, and it's a Pretty interesting take on that. It's a good question. Dunk and Makar had a little bit of relationship there. You can wonder what happened after that, after Dunk spent a lot of time with Egg, after Makar became king, things like that. A lot of stuff changed. So yeah, she's got a lot of great contributions to this episode. I expect the same going forward because that's what she always delivers. So we've got extra voices in here helping us out. You too can help us out by sending questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, anything, ideas, we're happy to listen and take it into account. And if it's relevant to the topic at hand, we'll ask it and shout you out. Makar was Egg's father, right? Yes. Makar was yeah, father he was of... Like kind of maybe a Stannis-ish type character. Very true, yeah. Rough and short and... yeah. But but believed ultimately... But honorable and... Yeah, and believed yeah. in merit above other things. Yeah. Uh, that, which is where that relationship came from. Good call. Yeah, very similar to Stannis. We did a parallel lives on Stannis Makar. And it's yeah. a tight one. Speaking of questions, we had started the pattern or the tradition, is it a tradition? I don't know what we'll call it, of having a trivia question at the beginning of each episode with the answer at the end. Oh, well, let's get back to that. The trivia question this time is, there's a Northern warrior from the dance era. He might show up on TV. Well, it's, it's an open question whether some of these characters will, be, will appear or not. He's a warrior, not like a politician, so it's not always as important to get these guys included. I kind of hope he's included. His... Name is Mad Hal blank. What is his last name? Could be a bastard name. Could be a house name. Could be something else. Could be of Max. something. <laughs> Mad Hal Max. <laughs> Mad Hal Max, yes. <laughs> That's it. Damn it, Sean. You ruined it. It's already... Okay, I gotta ask a different question. No, just kidding. Yeah, answer <laughs> at the end. Let's get started with our actual topic today. The basics, like I said... We're covering the years 1 to 129 AC. No spoilers for House of the Dragon because we will be stopping right at the point House of the Dragon ended season one. Lines us up very nicely. Caveat being, there's a lot of notes here. We may not finish it all today. We'll just go as far as we can on the timeline and can pick it up at another time if we don't finish. The Targaryens held power long after the dance, as we know, right? It's, but this was the era from 1 to 129, where the rule was really enforced by dragons. 
It took to the year 153 for the dragons to fully die out, but as a military weapon, their use diminished much earlier because there were so few of them. And as I said earlier, this is a topic that we've done a lot of extrapolating on. The Wikipedia page, meaning the Wiki of Ice and Fire, not regular Wikipedia, on the North has only five sentences on this era. <laughs> but each individual lord has a lot, at least some of them do. Real quick, you'll sometimes hear the, diff, the, the, the dating, AL or AC, in terms of era. It's kind of like BC and AD in the real world. AL is Aegon's Landing and AC is Aegon's Conquest. They're very similar. They're only about like a year and a half, two years apart. You'll usually see AC and that's what we'll use, but you will occasionally see AL and I just wanted to clarify that. It seems like a good time to point that out given that you may see that come up. Brand 3, A Dance with Dragons provides us with a pretty cool look at what these stern northern lords who were once kings looked like and what kind of image they projected. And well, Brand's vision gives us a quote we can start us off with here. The tree itself was shrinking, growing smaller with each vision, whilst the lesser trees dwindled into saplings and vanished, only to be replaced by other trees that would dwindle and vanish in their turn. And now the lords Brand glimpsed were tall and hard, stern men in fur and chainmail. Some more faces he remembered from the statues in the crypts, but they were gone before he could put a name to them. That is what he descends from, what the men we're going to discuss today descend from, what the North has been ruled by. Stark lords and other Northern lords are a unique breed. Winter and the old gods. I mean, it's a different culture. It's a different place. It's very separate from the rest of the realm. Lots of different traditions, lots of different cultures. It still has that quality to this day. But this, of all times, Aegon's conquest is when that started to change. There was a lot of joining. The realm connected itself more. There was a lot more, well, connectivity. And with that, cultural exchange began to happen on a greater and more frequent level. The Night's Watch was affected deeply. That's something we'll talk about a lot today. And that isolation of the North started to slowly fritter away. And closer and closer, the North got to the South. Closer and closer, they got with trade and marriages and all the different things that connect one culture to another. The distance between got shorter by means like new roads and new trade agreements and personal arrangements like marriages, like I said. So there's a lot of stuff that happened to change this. And that's one of the things that's going to make this episode particularly interesting is seeing how that happened and what the particular items were that caused this closeness. I had a thought I'm surprised it never even occurred to me before, but it's almost like manifest destiny in, in like American history, mm. right? Like this idea that the whole continent needs to be one, right? Yeah. Eventually, it's all going to be one country. That's Aegon uniting Westeros. Go a little deeper, eventually we built railroads across the country, which kind of united things, travel, communication, telephone lines, and things like that brought everyone closer than they had ever been before. And that's sort of what's happening in this time period, right? Yeah. Like the, the King's Row being built, even the dragons flying back and forth, like that can deliver information or uh, True. authority, you know, can consolidate power and stuff like that. It's a really good point. Yeah. And you mentioned the King's Road. That's one of the big ones that won't be built until 60, 70 AC. So uh, during Aegon's reign, it doesn't exist yet. But he spent a lot of time in the north, which, as we'll get to, there were reasons for that. So, first off, though, we're dealing with right after Lord Torrin became Lord Torrin and ceased to be King Torrin. He knelt to Aegon. 
near Heron Hall, seeing Heron Hall in smoking ruins and an army larger than his <laughs> with three dragons. He's like, mm, yeah, even if I think my northerners are tougher, like man to man than them, there's a lot more of them. And then there's those, you know, Valerian, Meraxes, and Vagar sitting there looking <laughs> gigantic. Yes, Meraxes was still alive at this point. Important note. Still, though, Torin's decision, it was not well received by a lot of Northerners. They maybe didn't see it the way he, wa- he did. They thought, even if we lose, we should have fought. The North would have been really hard to take by force, even with dragons. I mean, the Andals never did it over thousands of years. And it would have been tough for Aegon to do that. So this lingering resentment over the surrender is a good place to begin. It can't be underestimated or understated. Like How big a deal? It would have been 8,000 years of self-rule, of the pride of staying that way over all these attempts to conquer them or to bring them in the realm or to andalize them or at least to take parts of it. Even if it wasn't actually 8,000 years, because it probably wasn't actually 8,000 years, it was still a long time. And they think it was 8,000 years. They still act on that belief, even if it's not totally accurate. They have pride in that independence, even if their dates are off a little, right? That's, that's not a big difference there. If it was 4,000 years, it's not like, well, right. nah, that's not enough to have any pride. Over, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only 4,000. If we'd only Wait made it, we at least get to six. If or, we'd only made it, yeah, if we only made it one more thousand years, we could be proud of this. But 4,000, that's <laughs> weak. <laughs> Nina says, especially comparing Torrin Stark to past Stark kings. King John Stark didn't just repel raiders from the east. He built the wolf's den in order to make sure these invaders could not land again. Brandon the Ninth didn't just fight the Skagosi who had been raiding in the Bay of Seals. He destroyed their ships and forbade them the sea to make sure they could never raid again. I mean, talk about shutting them down for good. Theon Stark didn't just repel an Andal invasion at the Weeping Water. He went to Andalos <laughs> to punish them for their invasion <laughs> and brought back a bunch of heads and then went after the three sisters and drove the Ironborn from Cape Kraken. So the Northern Kings were not just holding the North, they expanded it. They had manifest destiny of a, of a style you're describing, Sean, but just for the North. It, they seem to have stopped at the Neck when it, it's arguable whether the Neck belongs to the North regionally, but certainly it's a, it serves as sort of a neutral zone. They decided, well, it's going to be our neutral zone. <laughs> you can have what's below it. So it's a really, really big deal that they that he just gave up. You would have thought, like, fighting to the death, a lot of them would have preferred that. Like, that would have been more noble. That would have been more honorable, more northern to die trying, right? Rather than just to bend the knee, right? That just seems so weak to some of them. Well, now, Sean, I see you frowning. You're like, I think he made the right call. Yeah. Like, on some level, there's honor to protecting lives. You know what I mean? Like, a, a, even the most stubborn, honorable person... There's a, there's got to be like a sliding scale. At some point, they'd be like, okay, now I'll surrender. Does that make yeah. sense? Like at some point, yeah. they'll realize it's better for their people, their family, their posterity, their legacy, the world as a whole or whatever. So, you know, they there might be some debate over where if it had gotten that far. But I think Torn Stark feels more responsibility than the average Lord who just wants to go run around with his sword. You know, like he's, actually responsible for all these people and their lives and their families and their homes and everything. And I think it was definitively the right answer. I agree. And there's a little more to it, Sean. You're totally right. And one of the reasons that I think is maybe the most important is the primary goal of the Lord Stark, the Stark in Winterfell, is to prepare for winter, to prepare for that. That's their objectively number one on the list line item. Independence is 
important, I suppose, because lack of independence might interfere with that number one goal of fighting winter or preparing for winter. So if Torrin Stark looked at it as like, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll win, maybe we won't, but the devastation to our manpower, to like people that can bring in the harvest, we need these bodies for things other than fighting. It's not just pride. It's not just that. So you're right, maybe even more than you first realize. It's a, this is a huge factor. It could ca- getting into a war could cause them to starve or to lose to the wildlings yeah. or something. An early sort of revelation I had when I was first getting into Game of Thrones, the idea that there's different house words, of course, but like the Starks and Atoll, you know, Caitlin and Ned being married, Tolly house words are family, duty, honor. Those aren't just like these generic ideals that they uphold. They're ranking priority. Mm. Family first. Yes. Honor second, duty last. It's more important. Your family, for Tolly's at least, family is more important than like your personal honor, pride, ego, whatever you want to call that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if the king wants you to murder someone, nope, uh, you put me to death, but I'm not going to commit murder out of duty. You know, so it's like ranking his priorities. Same thing. Priorities for Winterfell, for Starks, is winter's coming. We've got to be ready for that. So one way to be ready for that is to share resources with all <laughs> the other nations around. Like, yeah. wouldn't it be nice if these dragon lords could help us out when winter gets here? You know? Absolutely. As opposed to going to war against them to be independent at the expense of all these supplies that we had built up that were meant to be for winter. No, that's not what we're Right. That's very true, Sean. I think you're really on to something here because Torrin, if he looks at it, if he really thinks about it, it's got to occur to him if it wasn't obvious what you just said that, well, yeah, maybe connectivity with the South actually helps us prepare for winter. Maybe trade deals and like a dragon king holding it all together, that stability down South might be good for their ultimate goal. And this is not something that the other regions have to contend with. Dorne, well, they maybe they're not the best example because they, they did fight off the Targaryens. But regardless, they didn't have this other concern that the North has. They're not like, well, if we get into this war, we'll all starve because when winter comes, like, Dorne's not that worried about winter. You know, the Riverlands is somewhat worried about winter. They're worried about, you know, invaders coming from all over the place, like everybody. There's always someone that can invade them from any direction. But they're not worried about the wall being breached by <laughs> the king beyond the wall or worse, the others or giants or something like that. They have no concern of that regard. It's a completely different set of calculations for whether or not they should bend the knee to this new Targaryen overlord. Along the lines of what you're saying, like the, the Stormlands, they're not really worried about the Ironborn attack. True. Them, right? Yeah. But the North is. And I, wasn't there even like... Maybe we don't know the details, but wasn't there some like negotiation before the surrender? Wasn't it like there an was. invoice sent and some back and forth messaging? I wonder if part of that was like, look, we'll bend the knee, but you got to make those ironborn stop attacking our coast. <laughs> like, all right, yeah, we're going to do that That's anyway. part of the deal. Yeah, 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 totally. You're right. Yeah, there was. We don't know exactly what was said, but yes, Torrin sent Maesters and his half-brother Brandon to talk and, and go. There's messages went back and forth. There, there were some arranging, some deals, some, some talking. And yeah, there had to be, that had to be part of it. I think Torrin wanted to make sure certain things would be left in his decision, certain considerations related to winter, related to their ultimate responsibility was likely kept in hand. It was communicated to Angus, like, look, this is what's really important to us. If you honor this goal that we have, if you help us with this, better yet, then we'll gladly kneel and give our swords to, to you. That is one thing. A lot of times, you know, the idea of like whether they should have fought and some northern south they should have, even if it seems like a suicide mission or whatever. Sometimes you want to put up a certain amount of fight, even if you know you're going to lose, 
for negotiation power mm. at the end of it. Does that make yeah, sense? Like if you make these strong, battles yeah. tough enough, they might concede more to you before they, you know, they're going to win eventually, but how many people more are they going to lose in the meantime? All right, we'll concede now because you're making it so tough on us and let you have this land or whatever it is, you know. So I, I wonder if the Bannerman to Torn Stark were considering that or if they were just prideful, you know. Yeah, there's but, probably uh, some of both, you know. I bet there were some of both. both. And, and if that is the case, that might be what Torn was negotiating. He's like, you know, look, this is what's important to my people. You might beat us in this battle, but how many people are going to die first? Yeah, he could. This is what he could want to negotiate like, for. They kind of want me to fight you, and I don't really want to. But I gotta listen. Like he could be like, I don't want to yeah. fight you, but I. And he's and he could point out something like, "Look, Aegon, you will probably beat us, but we'll hurt you badly. And then how's the rest of your conquest going to go? Will you have enough left to take the rest of the continent? You know, maybe. Yeah. yeah so he could. He probably got some concessions there. Maybe some arrangements were made. If Aegon had had a daughter, maybe that would have been, someone would have asked for that, but Aegon didn't. Originally, George wrote it so that there were daughters, but really early on, he's like, never mind, no daughters. <laughs> he changed his mind. So, <laughs> so those daughters vanished. So they were like, kind of written out very early on. Now, as bad as it may have gotten in the North for this disappointment or frustration over Torrance kneeling, it never turned to actual rebellion. No, there was talk of it. There was talk of rising up against either Aegon or Torin, but neither of those materialized. Apparently, either Torin was able to calm that down or there just weren't enough of them and they saw the writing on the wall. They're like, yeah, there's not enough of us to do this. But some of them just didn't accept anyway. They found a third option. Rather than rebelling, rather than accepting this bending of the knee, they chose exile, voluntary exile, but together. They didn't just leave en masse and go their separate ways. The Company of the Rose was formed. And this was formed in Essos by mostly Northerners. And it apparently included women, which is interesting. Maybe some Mormon. We see warrior women amongst the Mormons and, and amongst the free folk and other places. So it makes sense. Amongst the Starks, like I would say Arya, maybe Lyanna, sure. they might have left with the Company of Roses. Good point, good point. But what's interesting is this name, the Company of the Rose. Like, what's up with that? A Northern sellsword company called the Company of the Rose. It's a little peculiar. Nina writes... Similar, his roses aren't exclusive to the North and indeed seem as much, if not more, associated with the Reach. Yeah, Robert once said, like, fields of golden roses. That's why the Tyrells have that sigil, because it's just they just grow out there like wild, like mad. Blue roses are associated with the North and Winterfell, given that Bale the Bard story, and the blue roses are grown in Winterfell's glass gardens. But we don't know if they're an exclusively Northern thing. And we don't know whether this is the rose, the company the rose had in mind. We don't know if their sigil was the blue rose. That would certainly give it away if it was, but we don't have any art for, maybe some fans have done art, but there's no official art for the company of the rose. Maybe Nina writes a, a cool theory here. Maybe the idea would be that these exiles were like the Stark daughter and Bale the bard who chose to hide in defiance of the Lord of Winterfell and left only a blue rose for him in their place. Remember, that was the way that started. They left a blue rose behind and then, you know, went off and hid in the crypt and all that and did their thing. That could mean that if, if you really take this idea to its full extension, the idea the Stark daughter and Bale the Bard return. <laughs> so maybe the Company of the Rose is like, we'll be back because we're the true Northerners. But that didn't happen. They, uh, they seem to have frittered away. I used the word frittered twice in a pretty short span there. That's cool. <laughs> they don't seem to still exist, I don't think. They, they gradually disbanded or disappeared. I mean, Selsword, it's hard to keep a Selsword company going. You know, you don't have like, 
families. Everybody's with it till they die or they retire. Yeah, it's sales or companies that stay around for a long time or happen in Essos, but we shouldn't expect them to be the norm. They're the exceptions to the rule. Yeah. I can imagine like a company of mercenaries, they get some job, they win, they get some payoff. All right, that's, I'm not risking my life some anymore. Some of them are I'm done rich. with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes maybe they merge with another one, like two different companies get yeah. both get beat up. Maybe they have, they're working for the same boss and they, they have a particularly tough war, but they both survive at half strength. They're like, hey, let's merge into one and take on a new name or just one absorbs the other. You never know. Is there any chance Tyrells were associated with this group? We don't hear about that, but it is possible. It, it seems to be pretty much a Northern thing, but it's, it's possible that it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have stayed that way. It wouldn't have been like, yeah, only Northerners are allowed. It, well, if they did, that would also help explain why it didn't last. <laughs> but you would think once they were like established in Essos, anyone that is competent, that shares their values, whatever that might be, would be welcome to join under and they may have some sort of test or some sort of thing you got to do. You got to get a tattoo. <laughs> you got to walk a tightrope. I don't know. Some sort of hazing ritual. Who knows? You have to have a rose garden. Yeah, you got <laughs> you to you hold the rose between your teeth and do a, do a jig, you know? <laughs> a company like the Golden Company or the Second Sons, these companies have lasted like hundreds of years. The Golden Company is just truly exceptional. I mean, there's like 10,000 of them and they objectively or state that they want to return to Westeros. It's like an open goal of theirs, so... They're, they're not great for comparing. They're the exception. You can't be like us. We're the golden company. <laughs> so yeah, so there's no actual attempt to overthrow Torin or any of that. But there was talk. And some of it came from Torin's sons. His sons were like, no, this isn't cool. They were, we were the son of a king. We were grandsons of kings. Our, our great-grandfather was a king. You know, this is not cool. But it didn't actually come to rebellion. It's not really clear what the North thought of dragons and Targaryen beliefs and customs because they weren't. They never adopted the seven, right? They didn't like Andal customs all that much. But Aegon adopted the faith. So maybe that was a bit of a rub. But he wasn't hostile to the old gods openly. And the faith was more concerned with the Targaryens than it was with the the old gods. So this is kind of a, a gray area. Maybe it's just one of those things where they just stayed apart and just had a you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you kind of attitude. Leave each other alone. There's not a whole lot of Baylor the Blesseds coming along to push the issue, especially when the dragons are a larger concern. Attitudes like this would fluctuate over time. There'd be some ebb and flow depending on who's in charge and what else is going on. But you would think some of this would come to a head a little bit with this now greater merging of the cultures. There's more and more traffic going north and south, more and more just general truck between the north and south, and that's going to cause some of these things to perk up, rise up, percolate a bit, you know, more and more, maybe rubbing the wrong way, a little religious uh, dogma coming up here and there. It might, it might matter. I want to look at it more optimistically. There might be a little bit more education and acceptance okay, These yeah. crossing the cultures. Like this guy's a good warrior or a good farmer or a good whatever. And, and he has a different religion. Huh, I guess I guess that religion's not so bad. They you know, could, like, yeah, it's, you're right. There's got to be some amount of that. You're you know? right, like a chance to see that they're not that different, right? A chance to like get yeah. along and be like, find certain things they have in value. Like, yeah, those Northerners, yeah, maybe they, their gods are weird, but you can count on them in a fight, you know? Or like those Southerners, they're a little too fancy, but they got that good wine down there. We need that. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing where we, we know they can't get good wine up in the North. They have to import that. So say, like, hey, this greater connection to the South brings some benefits. You're, Sean mentions things like education. I'm talking wine. <laughs> <laughs> Now, 
speaking of Targaryen culture, the Starks already had the Sword of Ice, and they'd had it for about 100 years. This is an open mystery how the heck they acquired it. it. Less of a mystery than how the heck the Mormons acquired Longclaw. But still, it happened, and they would have at least appreciated the quality of that sword. It was like, well, these Targaryens sure do make good swords. Valyrians sure do make good swords. <laughs> Whether we agree with anything else they do, it's a damn fine blade they make here. And that might, like, yeah, what else do you got? What else? Let's trade. You know, what else do you have? Maybe they don't have, they don't have a whole lot more of those, but... Surely they have some stuff. And the North has stuff that people want, you know, trade goods, furs, amber, timber, lots of good timber products. The North is big, full of trees, the amount of good wood they have up there. Good wood. <laughs> yes, even as, even as sober historians, we have to <laughs> have our moments of kindergarten humor. Yes, we're not above that. I'm certainly not. <laughs> I'm no sober historian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hmm, yes. So whatever, however that exchange was made, whatever they gave up for ice, there's more where that came from, even if there isn't more Valyrian steel <laughs> where that came from. And White Harbor, too. White Harbor would have been more opened up. White Harbor is a port, so that's it's one of five cities in the north. I mean, five cities in Westeros, rather, not in the north. There's only one city in the north. And... White Harbor is relatively new, historically speaking. I mean, it's not new, new. It may have been around for 1,000 years, 800 years at this point. And it was, it's really important as a connection point between the South and North because it's like a cultural estuary. It's got knights and seven worshipers, but it's in the North and it has Northerners and worshipers of the old gods. It's both. It's where, Sean, what you're talking about, where Northerners and Southerners can get to know each other a bit. It's like, the concept of White Harbor expanded a bit more globally when the North was united under the Iron Throne. Not as simple logistically to get there, but it became easier. There'd be more and more ships going to White Harbor, more and more traffic back and forth, more and more ships going from White Harbor South to, to Southern destinations. And with that, the smaller markets would become included. You get more and more trade with Dragonstone and Driftmark and Duskendale and etc. You wonder too if the North started trading farther out in the world or how much they were doing of that before. If this encouraged them to go farther and some of that would have started with the building of White Harbor, but that would have, you know, these things change over time. They don't just, you don't just build a city and all of a sudden you're trading with Ashai. <laughs> you know, these, these relationships have to be established and the longer a relationship goes, the safer it is, the more you can count on it. But early on, something can happen, it can fall apart and you have to reestablish it. The olive tree example Outside Marine, I think, is a really powerful one. Do you remember this one, Sean, when the Miranese nobles cut down the olive trees to de deny Danny's army of food? But they were shooting themselves in the foot, too, because it takes 35 years for those olive trees to produce. Yeah. So that's 30, that's 35 years. Danny like Even if them. Danny fails, they still don't have the olive trees. So yeah, it takes so long for that to be productive. So it's the same thing with trade arrangements. You can't, it, it, it's, it's off and on. It's not the exact same thing. The trees literally produce nothing in those early years. You might get something right away from trade, but as far as like recurring, productive, dependable, yeah, you need time. Stability is really important to society. You, you need to be able to bank on harvests, you know, crops being harvested. And, you know, the, when the ship leaves, especially ship going to a shy and back, 
how long would that take? Yeah. By the time they get two back, years. the city might be stacked. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> like literally two years apparently can take maybe a little less if, if they're hurrying or if they take fewer stops. But yeah, I mean, because you stop, you, you would stop on a lot of other cities on the way, of course, to do more trading. But yeah, that's a really, really important consideration. You're right, Sean. I mean, it, it almost sounds like trite to say stability is important, but it's this is when it's particularly important when you're going through this transitional period. And that's what Torin's going. He's like, well, we're at a crossroads here. If I kneel... There may be some instability from anger over me kneeling, but it's probably greater long-term stability to have the realm united. He, he may, be, may have been that kind of thinker where he saw, the, looked ahead and was like, yeah, this is going to be good for us in the long term. Or he looks at it and says, well, we can fight and who knows what's going to happen. We definitely won't have stability in the short term if we fight. And we may screw mm-hmm. ourselves in the long term if it's too devastating, both for us and for them right? Like we could screw them up. And then where are we going to buy food from when winter comes, right? If the dragons burn the forest down, you know? Yeah. Or the castle. I mean, he saw what they did to Harrenhal. He's like, well, we have our, what if they did that to Winterfell where they have their hot springs and they're like, this is what keeps their hotter springs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. like He melts Winterfell and they don't have that refuge in winter. That's horrible. Like that had to cross his mind. Like, uh, yeah. So immediately... Torin made his men available as you're supposed to, as you, you do as a vassal. And since his army was unharmed, he had quite a few on hand. There was still some cleanup to go. The Sister Men's Rebellion was ongoing or started. They refused to bend the knee along with the Veil. The Veil was controlling the Sisters at the time. But the Aaron fleet, which was the main thing keeping the sisters in line, the naval strength of the Aarons, was destroyed during the conquest by Visenya. And the three sisters are like, hmm, no fleet to keep us in line, eh? Let's rise up. And this brings us to the first use of the warden system. Warden of the North, Warden of the South, Warden of the East, Warden of the West. That, of course, did not exist before the Iron Throne. That's a, a new... A martial arrangement created under the Iron Throne to deal with threats based on where they take place. Like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, if you have invaders from, I don't know, the Summer Islands <laughs> attacking Dorne, you wouldn't send the Stark and Winterfell to deal with that. But it's got to be assigned to somebody. Like, who is it? The Dornish? Is it the Stormlanders? Like, well, it's not the Dornish in this era because they're not subjugated. But you got to sort all this stuff out. When, it, when someone's attacking along a shared border, whose responsibility is it, for example. So Aegon ordered Torin to put down this rebellion of the sisters, even though you would have thought maybe it would have been the Vale's responsibility because that's who's been in charge of them. But no, Torin's the warden of the north. So this is his job, according to him. He could have, he could have given it to the warden of the east because this is also the east. It's the north and the, it's the northeast. <laughs> so it could have been either. But the Vale lord at the time was Ronald Aaron, a boy. So it's an easy choice when you lay it out like that. This was also an opportunity, Nina writes, for Torin to prove himself in the eyes of the Targaryens. It's one thing to simply not fight, but what does Aegon think today? He's like, okay, good. I wanted you to kneel, but he's like, well, he doesn't actually know what he's got when this man kneels. Like, well, how good of a warrior was this guy? The Starks have been in charge up there for thousands of years. How do I know this guy is actually formidable? Maybe he's just, they're just continuing this long tradition of Starks ruling. Maybe this guy's just a weakling. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't know for sure. So showing that he's dependable, 
is a good thing. Other Northerners might look on it as, you know, you're running to obey your new Dragon King. But on the other hand, he's like, he wants to have a good relationship. He wants the things you talked about, Sean. He's like, I want to, when winter comes, I want this king to help us. I want him to send us food. Like we need, we're going to need that. Like we we're the North. We can handle it on our own, but why not have some help? Why not, you know, why not make it a little easier on ourselves? Why struggle when we can just tough it out with a, with a little bit of a boost from the South? I wonder also if maybe that's part of why there's a lot of reasons, I guess, but I, I wonder if one reason was that Aegon was testing Torrin's loyalty. Oh, yeah. Could I, be. All right. So you bow to me when I'm right in front of you with the dragon. Are, is it just for show? Are you buying your time till you rise up against me? Like Balon Greyjoy maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put your money where your mouth is. You know, I'm the king. I'm telling you, go fight this battle. Is it. he going to do it? Yeah. You know, I got to see what I have at all. Yeah. How well is he going to do it? And it also uh, sets a precedent for the the other wardens of the south and the east or whatever. Like, okay, I told the warden of the north what to do. He did it. Good job. All right. You guys see what you're supposed to do. It establishes the system, the rapport, the standard. Yeah, you're right. It's a new, it's yeah. a new thing entirely. And Torin maybe even recognized that he had an opportunity to shape this new office a bit by his own behavior and and maybe carve out what the whole thing was. Because even Aegon probably didn't hadn't fully thought through all the ramifications of the system. And you're right. I think testing him is a really good idea too. That's a really good point because you want to see what you have. You want to see what capabilities of your of your own dependents and your own vassals, your mm-hmm. own loyalists. What, is he really loyal in the first place? How valuable is his loyalty? How competent Establishing is he? Establishing yeah. precedent for the rest of the realm. Yeah, there's a million values to it. So what he did was he ordered Warwick Manderley. Sir Warwick, not Lord Warwick. So this was have been a son or a cousin of the Manderley of White Harbor. Led the Northern Army on galleys. Now they had to hire galleys from Bravos. They didn't have their own ships at that point or at least not enough of them. And the Vale fleet, of course, hadn't been rebuilt yet. They landed and apparently didn't have too much trouble. They, the sistermen apparently miscalculated. Basically, as soon as the Northerners landed, they started turning. They deposed Queen Marla in favor of her younger brother. Yeah, they actually put up a queen, Queen Marla Sunderland, in favor of her younger brother, Lord Stefan. And then Stefan had multiple sons. Manderley kept one of them as a hostage. And the Aaron's kept another. So that was that. The sisters were well in hand from that point on. They didn't return to their piratical wrecking ways. They were, of course, the sister men are known for their false lights leading ships to shore to pillage the wreckage. Real dirty. But uh, that, so that was kept in, in, in check. And Torrin proved himself. He proved capable. I mean, maybe it wasn't the toughest thing. Taking on the sisters isn't the most difficult. They're not a, a great military force. But it was a place that the, the Vale and the Starks fought over for a thousand years in the Worthless War. So they, there was a lot of history there between the Starks and the Sister Men and the Aarons. The Aarons may have been helping with that somewhat. It's not entirely clear. But it would have gotten them to work together. And that's another thing, is these lords have to work together. Maybe one way to get rid of some past animosity is to, you're on the same side now. You know, you, you're put in a situation where you have a common enemy and it's not your former enemy. And work, like you said, Sean, anytime you're like with or around someone or working with someone, getting to know them, there's a good chance, a decent chance, some of those old animosities fall off, or at least they're balanced by things you can find to like or value in these new arrangements. On the other side of Westeros, 
the Greyjoys, rather the Iron Islands. It wasn't the Greyjoys in charge at this point, though it was about to be. The Greyjoys were put in charge after all this. Aegon nominated them to take over once the House Whore was put down. But it was also a religious uprising. There was Lodos, or Lodos, Lodos, the drowned priest. This was mostly Arbor, Lannisport, Highgarden, and Balerion. Aegon went with Balerion. But there were ships from Bear Island ordered by Lord Torrance. So he participated here too. So he was on, this wasn't a, this was, looks like Aegon was in charge of this expedition since he was there personally. But Torrin was, once again, jumped at the chance to help apparently and showed, this was probably a smaller group. I mean, the Bear Island longships probably isn't some huge contingent, but I'm guessing they made their mark. I mean, we talked, we did an episode on Bear Island. These are really tough people, right? This is where we suggested if anywhere in the North is producing warrior women, and there's probably multiple places, but if it's only one place, it's here. <laughs> it's Bear Island. They, we know they have badass warrior women there. Even- Isn't there sigil like a, a woman with a baby in one arm and a sword in the other? Or something well, not the like sigil, that? but they have that statue. There is that. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So the, the statue, the sigil is just the bear. But yeah, they do have that. Like, Boring. Yeah. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> <laughs> Big surprise, a bear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the, iron, the bear islanders were probably like, wait, we can attack them? Because it's always the ironborn <laughs> coming after them. We're like, yeah, they probably jumped at this chance. So it was probably eager Bear Islanders like, yeah, we get to take it to them for once. We get to bring our axes to their homeland <laughs> instead of them coming for us. There was probably some, eh, maybe a little more eagerness than there was from Highgarden. <laughs> but maybe the, the, some of the people from the Arbor or the Shield Islands would have been like, yeah, we want this too. <laughs> Let's take it to them. They're always coming for us. Real quick, who who were the wardens of the southeast and west? I guess, I guess the west would have been the Lannisters. The west was the Lannisters? probably the Lannisters, but it's not clear. It may have been someone else, but the warden of the south was probably the Lord Hightower of the time. Okay, that's not yeah. that's not entirely clear either. It wouldn't have been anyone Dorne, obviously, because Dorne wasn't conquered. And the warden of the east might have been the Aaron, even though he was so young. But it could have been Oris Baratheon, who was yeah. Aegon's brother half-brother. That makes the most sense for the Warden of the East. But I don't actually, I don't actually remember if that's the case or not. It's a good question. I'll have to look that up. So this was the last region to submit other than Dorne, which didn't submit at all until, you know, much, much, much later. Marley, Super Chat. Just a show of love and support. Love you guys and the kitties. Well, thank you, Mara. We love you and your kitty as well. We are all cat people here. <laughs> you and Sean and Ashea and, and me. A lot of you as well. And he- hello to you dog people as well and you other animal people. You're now a cat person. I don't care if you call yourself a dog person. You're now a cat person. We have converted you. We sent out subliminal messages during these podcasts. <laughs> encourage cat people. Oh, it's not very subliminal in my case. It's just, it's just liminal. <laughs> it's just frighten your face. So Lord Torrin, he went from king to lord. It's not clear how long he ruled. Once this end of the conquest was done, once he had his responsibilities of helping that be finished off was over. He presumably dealt with his unruly vassals, those who were unhappy with this decision. Some of his sons were unhappy, as we said. It's unclear what happens to Brandon Snow, his half-brother. Brandon Snow is the the one that may have been in the vision that Bran saw cover a cutting some weirwood arrows because Brandon told his brother, he's like, yo, send me over there. I will assassinate the dragons. <laughs> Torrin's like... Mm-hmm. Will you? <laughs> it would have been interesting if he had tried, but he did not. So we don't know if he had other family. He had several sons and at least one daughter. 
We don't know about the Cousins, but there was a winter in 5 to 6 AC. So not that long after the conquest, it's inevitable, as always. Torin would have been thinking about it. Maybe a winter had just passed since it's five years before we get the next one. Maybe there's another winter we just don't hear about. There has been work done in this fandom to try to figure out when the different winters, summers, autumns have been that we know of. There's a big list on the wiki that tells when we know of a summer, winter, autumn, or whenever, throughout history. And whenever one of those pops up in this episode, I'll point it out because it's particularly relevant when we're talking about Starks. Because it, it'll certainly affect what their ability to do is. Like, if they're in the middle of winter, they're not going to war, you know, unless, unless someone comes for them. It really impacts what they're able to do logistically. Other re- regions, it's less of a consideration. It always matters. But well, they have more flexibility regardless of seasons. Whereas the North, constantly, they got to keep that in mind. It came up when Rob was, got, Rob was getting his army together. It came up in Robert's Rebellion. It's just always is coming up. It it's always matters. It's, it's why the North, part of because the North is so large, part of because the North has other considerations. That's why their armies are always a little late to the field. But when they come, they're ready and they're fierce. One of the immediate decisions made here, one of the benefits to kneeling to a greater authority in general, to submitting to an authority that, that rules the, the whole realm or whatever realm you're talking about, whatever piece of property we're talking about is peace. You, uh, you're hoping for that. You're hoping for that stability. That's the, the plus side of submitting to a higher authority, a higher, greater military authority is that they're going to keep that peace and stability we talked about. And with the North, it's a more important consideration given they have a much greater downside to not keeping the peace because of the horrors of winter. One of this, one of these moves was to bring unity between the Vale and the North to long-term enemies to they shared borders they didn't share cultural values so yeah that's part of why that worthless war raged for so long was because there wasn't a whole lot to for them to come to the table and negotiate and be like all right well let's be friends now but now we have someone more powerful than either of them that's saying you two will be friends rainies queen rainies comes along and says ronald aaron Lord of the Vale, you're a boy, you're 10 or something, you're going to marry Torin's daughter, whose name we lack. And Nina writes, in Rhaenys' mind, I'm sure this marriage probably seemed like a sensible diplomatic means of uniting the realm under the new Targaryen regime. By arranging a match between the formerly royal Lord of the Eyrie and a daughter of the formerly royal Lord of Winterfell, Rhaenys might have wanted to demonstrate that those who had bent the knee peaceably to the Targaryens would in turn be supported and looked after by them. Right? That's reasonable. Rhaenys might have seen a marriage between two very illustrious houses as a benefit or reward to both, and so hoped that the gratefulness on both sides would be something that the Targaryens could benefit from. They say, hey, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for creating this peace. Thank you for creating a family between us. Like that would create Stark Aaron children that would bind them together, hopefully. In turn, these children would then marry perhaps into other families around the realm and they would all start to have shared blood between all the great houses, which would hopefully tamp down their willingness to fight each other. This kind of stuff happened in the real world in a lot of different countries. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need a fancy word here. Just different countries, kingdoms. The power of family is really strong in, prov- in keeping the peace for future generations. And that's what Rainey's was angling for here. However, there may be some cultural things she overlooked. Lord Stark 
as much as Torin was like, yes, I'm your vassal now, he did not like this idea. He did not want this marriage. But he did give in. He did eventually accede. His sons, though, just goes to show how unpopular this was. His sons did not attend the wedding. Their own sister's wedding. The Stark. They didn't go. That's a big deal. So you can see where this, the bad blood was still there. They didn't, they weren't up, they weren't rising up with their swords in hand, but they were loudly proclaiming their unhappiness. And one of these sons is going to inherit Winterfell. So that's like, mm, well, what's going to mm. happen here? This is not great if this is, if this state of affairs continues. So that would be a little ominous. Now, we're trying to figure out why they were so against it. We're not entirely sure. Is it because it was forced? Just on principle, they don't want, you know, don't make us marry. You know, that, I'm a little skeptical on that because that's normal <laughs> for noble houses. They force their own families to marry each other all the time. So I'm not so sure that was it. Maybe the religious differences. That's a pretty big one, I think. Much later, when we get to the sixth Lord of Winterfell, or is it the seventh? Alaric, the one, one of the ones who's also kind of like Stannis, the one of the ones we know the most about, he's going to say, no, my sons will marry you know, my sons will marry in front of a heart tree. My daughter will marry in front of a heart tree. We don't do that. Because Alisanne, good Queen Alisanne, is like, hey, why don't you, I'll find southern daughters for your sons. And he's like, no, I don't want that. <laughs> Eventually, he gave in on that point too. But the thing he cited was the religious differences. So that's kind of my angle here. I think that might be the thing, which is an even bigger problem in the veil. Sean, do you recall the veil's issues especially House Aaron with weirwood trees. Does that ring a bell for you? There isn't one. There's no weirwood at the Erie and they tried to plant them and very ominously, oh, they just yeah. don't take. It's like, yeah. mm, the old guy, it's like the old gods are not here. You know, it's just very like symbolic of, because it's the seat of Andal power. It, it used to be a, a holy place for the old gods, but that's a long time gone now. The Andals first landed there when they came from Andalos and it's the seat of, the oldest and all blood and, and religion. So that could be a problem. <laughs> you could see why the Northerns are like, eh, no. It's interesting, by the way, a, a couple, I mean, I'm just totally theorizing, but there's got to be some potential that they just didn't like their sister or something like that. You know, some, <laughs> some personal yeah, internal reason. It might not be connected to tradition or world politics or whatever. I, I wonder if also maybe it was the last straw. Like, okay, fine. For the sake of winter, we'll go along with these Targaryens. Okay, fine. We want to go fight in some battles anyway. We'll fight in battles that Targaryens are picking. Wait a minute. Our family marriages? That's too far. That's that's crossing a line, maybe. And I wonder, also, similar, I thought maybe Aegon was testing Torn. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, you you kneel to me, but now it's time to, 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 to put up, you know, what? We're going to battle. Send your bannermen. And so Torrance Stark did it. We're like, all right, now you need to marry. And to the other, this is maybe another test of like, are you really committed? This is what you really need to do if you're really going to be part of the, yeah. the realm. And maybe uh, maybe they knew they were pushing limits. And maybe Torn also knew that. Like, <laughs> maybe knew we had to do this, but it wasn't as excited. It was a tougher pill to swallow, but eventually he does but the sons don't because they're not actually responsible like he is, yeah, right? true. And maybe eventually, I, uh, which, which one of these sons did go on to be Lord of Winter or did one of the sons go yes. on to be Lord yeah, of Winter? Yeah, it was Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it was a Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a 50-50 of just guessing that. Yeah, yeah, Brandon the boisterous <laughs> in this case. 
perhaps the reason his nickname is the boisterous was be, was things like this was like outspoken loudly like I'm about, not going to yeah. the wedding yeah like stuff like this like we shouldn't have bent the knee father you know like loudly proclaiming that at court or whatever in front of people so yeah or i would have done but i could have beaten the dragons you know if i were in charge we would have won yeah <laughs> something like that that's that sounds boisterous right another potential reason is that it's normally that's normally the right of the lord you usually get to decide who your daughters and sons marry. That's usually their call. So that's, it looks like encroachment on their traditional rights, even that normal lords would have. Normally the king doesn't come in and make these decisions. It happens sometimes, but like Robert Baratheon wasn't out here making a lot of marriages. You know, like Ares Targaryen wasn't out here making a lot of marriages between other houses. Like it happened occasionally, but it wasn't like, you don't usually tell the great lords who to marry. At that point, things are more established though. True. They didn't necessarily True. need to do it. There already were all these intermarriages. It was already accepted that the seven kingdoms were all united. But at this point, they're still trying to establish this precedent. It just now occurred to me, it might have been a much a test of the Aaron's as the Starks. Yeah, you're like, right. He's telling them who to marry also, you know, so. That's a good point because they didn't put up a fight either or they prepared to, but remember what happened was Visenya just flew to the top of the Erie and was, and when they ran up there, she had the Lord, the little 10-year-old in her lap and, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, like hello. Okay, like, okay, we get it. You win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so their armies were untouched too. So but, he, yeah, so and, he might have been worried. And you know, that's precedent setting too. Like, it, you know, in this, it, maybe the Starks are like, you know, as sexist as the whole establishment is, but on some level, they're like, now it's the daughter, but next they might tell me who to marry. Yes, you know what I mean? you're right. Like, like how far is this going to go? Yeah. If they can make the Stark boy marry who they want and they can make the Winterfell girl marry who they they might be telling me who to marry next. Yes. And, and Torn's not worried about that. He's already married and had his kids, but now his sons, who maybe you're already in love with someone or eyeing some castle they want to marry into, or never mind tradition and pride and all that stuff. It's all in question now. Yes. And what I, else I are they going to make the, us do? Yeah. What, yeah. Like what other... What's next? What, yeah. yeah. What's next? Exactly. Like, this is how it starts. Slippery slope arguments, right? Yeah. And you can see where they're coming from. Like, they don't know what the Targaryens are going to do. It's not like Aegon had some long history to, that people could interpret and predict off, based off of. Now, interestingly, too, our sensibilities here are a little thrown off because we started with Catelyn and Ned. That throws us off. We got North-South marriage right there. The first family we're introduced to in the story is a house that has a marriage kind of like this. It's become more normal now, but it wasn't back then, in part because the kingdoms weren't united. They weren't under one umbrella. North-South marriages are still not super common, though, They even though they do happen. And even when they did happen before, they were mostly cultural similarities, like White Harbor marrying someone in the South where there's a lot closer connection there, or a Northerner marrying a Blackwood where they still worship the old gods. So the differences are smaller, the similarities are greater. You don't see, like, it's... I don't think there is an example of a Stark marrying, you know, like a a member of House Uller, or even a Martell, right? These things are, like Sean said, it's they're establishing precedents, and that's a really important thing. And they, they weren't established at the time. Nina says, I imagine this marriage may have been seen as a perfect storm of bad factors. Torrin's sons, as well as maybe other Northmen, not counting those who had already left for the Company of the Rose, were already grumbling about losing independence, and the marriage of the Stark daughter probably encapsulated that loss of independence. The Targaryens were telling a former king how his daughter should be married, when normally that's the king of the North's job. Worse, they're 
ordering her to marry a man her brothers would have considered a foreigner, not just one who didn't share their old God's faith, but one whose ancestors were proud champions of the new gods, which yeah, they're not, they're not big fans of that. So there's a lot of things. It's probably wrong for us to look at just one reason. There's probably a variety of reasons, and even, the, even if some may have mattered more than others. Unfortunately, this marriage didn't produce children. It wasn't the established line that formed. When Ronald was murdered by his own brother, Jonos, yes, that is what happened, who was in turn murdered by his supporters, Jonos, because <laughs> they heard Magor was coming. <laughs> They're like, uh-oh, we really screwed up. Magor is coming. So Hubert Aaron, cousin, cousin Hubert, took over and he, of course, wasn't married to a Stark. So it didn't work out as well as it could have. But still, it seems to have worked. Solid relationship going forward. At least conditions improved. Because fast forward to now, as I said, Catelyn and Ned, you know, that's not a veil relationship. But Lysa Tully goes over there in their sort of Riverlands, North Vale trifecta. And who fostered Ned Stark? Who refused to give him up to Ares when he called for his head? That's John Aaron. So clearly things came around and maybe we can give some of the credit here to Rhaenys and Aegon and, and the conquest for putting them on a trajectory for eventual good relationship. The, the, the bad blood between Vale and the North doesn't really seem to be a deal in time of A Song of Ice and Fire because they've been united by these marriages. The, the Tully Stark stuff all worked really well. Let's talk a little bit about White Harbor. White Harbor, early on, Aegon the Conqueror, as we said, was very clever. He was very smart in how he managed the post-conquest realm. There's a lot of ways he could have screwed it up. He could have been good at conquering and bad at administering, and that would have caused the whole thing to collapse. And then a lot of these great benefits that you could have derived from having everybody united would have actually been negative. So it would have squandered that and made things worse. But he was very smooth. He did smart things like, as we saw, he appointed the Tyrells in charge of the Reach, which made a lot of Reachmen unhappy. But not with him, with the Tyrells. And he put the Tullys in charge of the Riverlands, who had never been in charge before. The Tullys are, have a very defensible castle, but they're not that well-suited for large-scale aggression. And the same thing happened there, where the, a lot of the Riverlanders are like, why are the Tullys in charge? Shouldn't it be us? Aren't we better? And so that kind of paralyzed them a bit from looking outward. They were more looking inward as to who should be in charge. That's exactly what Aegon wanted. He wanted them to be concerned inward and not ganging up on him or rebelling against him. So with the North, his play was a little, little less straightforward. The greatest source of power for the North outside of Winterfell is White Harbor. If White Harbor isn't strongly in Winterfell's corner, Winterfell's ability to fight any foreign power is severely diminished. So Aegon played it cool with White Harbor. He made them into a friend. He less try, he tried less hard to make a friend of Winterfell and real hard to make a fan of White Harbor. And with White Harbor being friendly with Aegon, the North is going to think twice, three times, four times, five times maybe about rebelling. Three times he held court in White Harbor for an extended period, which kind of implies they weren't Alder Torrin's reign. We get to our fourth Lord Stark around the year 49. We have no idea how long Torrin reigned. We have no idea how long his next son reigned. We have no idea how long the following one, which was a Roderick Stark, and then another Brandon. So we don't know 
how long each of these lords reigned, especially the early times. Later on, we get a little little closer and tighter on, on their reigns, but it seems likely that the lingering resentment continued beyond Torin, especially given the evidence that some of that resentment came from his sons, one of whom became the next Lord of Winterfell. So Aegon would have been wary and keeping an eye on the North, and by being constantly present there, he would have curbed a lot of that, a lot of the lingering resentment. He would have built relationships with the locals, trade agreements maybe. White Harbor would have less and less seen the need for independence. They would have been slowly bought in. They've been slowly like, yeah, why would we ever want to give this up? This has been good for us. Despite the different gods, I mean, White Harbor's already on that. The White Harbor's already north and south. They already have both worshiping gods going on. They already worship the old gods and the new gods. They already manage both sides of this. So it's the perfect place for Aegon to plant his flag and make it work, to keep it peaceful, to intimidate them into keeping things in the status quo. Gildane writes that Aegon the Conqueror made six progresses to the north during his reign, and that during these visits, he held court thrice in White Harbor, twice at Barrowton, and once at Winterfell on his very last progress in 33 AC. I, I wish we knew who was Lord in 33 AC. That would really tell us a lot. I'm guessing maybe it was the third one. Maybe this is after Brandon the Boisterous passed and we get to Roderick. That would make a lot of sense. It would fit that he's going to visit this new Lord to check in with him, maybe the one he doesn't know as well. Not really sure. Pure guess there, but Nina continues, Aegon the First clearly recognized the delicate balance between old power and new in the North, where he might have naturally gravitated towards Winterfell as the seat of the Norse liege lord and the long-standing politico-cultural heart of the region he instead delayed his court holding there until after he had spent a lot of time at the other key locations, three times at White Harbor and twice at Barrington, which, I mean, those are the two cities, right? Barrington isn't a full city, but it's the closest thing to a city besides White Harbor in the north. And it's on the other coast, so it sort of represents things on the, of the west side of the north, whereas White Harbor is in the east. She concludes here, Aegon demonstrated that he would not show undue favor to the Starks simply for being the chosen masters of the North or its former royal dynasty. The Starks were only one of the many families now ruled by the Iron Throne. Sure, they're the top one, but the other families are really important too. And by raising the esteem of the others, they had some buy-in from Aegon. They had reason to have some loyalty to him as well, to the Iron Throne that would make it less likely that they would rise purely for the North. She writes another part here that's really good. In fact, Aegon shows perhaps the two most disparate locations within the North for his other progresses. Yeah, in, at Barrowton, he didn't just hang out at the town, but he supposedly went amongst where the realm of the first king was. Remember, if you recall our episode on the, the Barrow Kings, we talked about this a good deal, where you still have a lot of northern, deep, ancient belief and, and tradition there. So he's sort of presenting himself alongside that and respecting it. He's showing respect to the seat of northern cultural heritage. The Starks are the seat of cultural uh, northern cultural rule, but the barrow of the first king is where that all came from. So it is pretty subtle but smooth that he's showing respect all over the north not just to the Starks. So it spreads that power. It dissipates a little of that Stark awe, a little of that, oh, there must be a Stark in Winterfell. Well, you can keep that, but maybe don't view them quite so much like God Kings. Maybe view them a little more, let's take it down a notch or two, especially because 
hey, look who actually is closer to a god riding a dragon and all, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, ice, fire, hmm, where's the actual power here? But he did it respectfully. Very smooth. Strong, but subtle and nuanced. Don't mess with me, but I'm smart. You know, <laughs> like all the angles. Very, very well done. Aegon, we don't know a lot about Aegon. We really don't, but he was no dummy. Definitely not. It's even possible Torin thought the North or Brandon the Boisterous maybe thought they could break free later. We touched on this briefly earlier. Thalon Greyjoy pointed out that kneeling gives you a chance to rise again later with blade in hand. He said that out loud. He's like, yeah, kneeling's not so bad. You can just bide your time and wait for another opportunity. Sure, it's not the most proud thing to do, but if you can get over pride, then it's a good strategy. Balon clearly didn't have that problem. But if Torin or Brandon the Boisterous thought that they could break free later, those angles were cut off by Aegon's smooth managing of the situation. He saw the North needed extra attention. He saw that to keep it under the Iron Throne, he'd have to pay them more respect, more time, more fa- face time in particular being there. And it worked. Iron Throne, under the dragon, established. And a good thing about the North is once they decide to do something, they're more likely to stick to it than the other regions. So once they're firmly in your corner, they're going to stay there. It's difficult to get them there in the first place. But once they're there, the North's stubbornness can be a, a great ally as much as it can be a worthy enemy. All right, funny, we talked about maybe this would be, we didn't know how long this episode would take. We knew that Torin would be the longest of the lords to discuss, probably, or we thought he probably the would, but we've already lord. gone over an hour on just him, so, yeah. and the conquest. It's a pretty big deal. So let's take our... He's the longest lord. The longest lord. <laughs> Talk the about things word. that they would argue about pride over. I'm the longest lord, yes. <laughs> our jaunt through northern history is indeed taking us places but it's not taking us places quickly. The North is huge. It takes a lot of exploration. And that's what we're doing. This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Did you know that a subscription to NordVPN will almost certainly save you money rather than costing you money? It's incredible to consider, but it's almost certainly true. There are exceptions. I can't guarantee it. That would be foolish of me. I don't know everyone's individual situation, but it's highly likely because for first of all, NordVPN is about the price of a cup of coffee per month. So, I mean, that's not very much. And you can use it on six devices on every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV supports NordVPN. The reason I say it can save you money or almost certainly will save you money is because in the modern world now, almost every big business is tracking you. Airlines, Netflix, your, your own ISP. And for the most part, it's harmless. They're not doing that much with that data. But a lot of times they use it to charge you more. They know what you're interested in. They know what you're looking for. And once they know what you're looking for, they tack on charges. It sounds dystopian, but it's completely true. This is 100% accurate. This has been tested repeatedly by lots of different public interest groups. And the VPN companies themselves are all very big on this. And there's lots of ways to prove it. So it pays for itself. It's a very straightforward idea. You can browse anonymously. It's the fastest VPN in the world. That's nice. Like there's other VPN services, but why sign up for a bad one when you can have the fastest one in the world? And Four additional months for free when you sign up with your huge discount. 
30-day money-back guarantee. NordVPN.com Thrones is where you sign up. Take advantage of these savings now. There's really no reason to wait. Get on there. Pay your cup of coffee price. Start saving money, especially if you're planning on traveling. The airline ticket one, I think, is the big one, really. That's the one that really saves you the most money. Shay and I have experience with, this, with seeing that, looking at flights and then looking at it again. And then you look at it again on a different computer and the price has gone back down. It's because they've used cookies and things like that. I don't even know all the technological terminology, but that's how they do it. And they'll add you 10, 20, 30, $100 on that. How many months of NordVPN before you've spent $100? Well, I don't know how many cups of coffee until you reach $100. It's roughly that same math. So I think it's pretty straightforward. I think it's pretty clear that it'll save you money unless you have a very unique situation. Check it out, nordvpn.com slash thrones. Go there today, start saving. Questions from y'all. Lady Starfall, may I ask you if you think that the North knew about the prophecy, meaning assuming you are talking about the Song of Ice and Fire prophecy. I really do wonder about that. I think the show is going to say they did. I, and I think that there's a good chance that the book, the book version of this, it may not be exactly the same as the show. I think, I think there'll be some substantial differences, but I think it'll point to the same things. I, I would like to say that what's clear to us is that George told Ryan and Miguel about Aegon's prophecy, that that yes. was true. It being passed down in the way that it's passed down, the dagger thing, the, the, the that entire concept as far as it's it's been indicated to us, is from Ryan and Miguel, which doesn't preclude that Aegon told someone in the North about it. But I just want to be clear on what actually came from George. And yes, Aegon having that dream, that prophecy was a George detail. So I think we should speculate about Torrent specifically. I agree. And that's a great point, Shea, pointing out the difference between the prophecy and the dagger. The dagger was a show invention, but the prophecy coming from Aegon was from George. That's hugely crucial. The mechanism of passing that prophecy down is what's changed in the books, apparently. There's, the dagger is what's missing. But the dream was still there. That's the part that really matters. And when we, when we think about phrases like, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell, and winter is coming, and they know that the others are coming, it's the same idea. And where did they hire about that? It had to, I mean, did they just, when they when the long night ended, did the Starks go, well, let's make sure this never happens again? Or was it a supernatural reason or a vision that told them that it would happen again? I lean towards the latter because if they beat the others, why would they have, if they beat the others, why would they have a reason to think they were coming back? What would tell them that this is going to happen again other than, other than prophecy and visions? What else, where else would that come from? So I'm very pro some form of a prophecy, maybe not the exact same prophecy, but tapping into the same future. They, they're seeing some of the same futures through different means, maybe through ice magic versus fire magic, or for lack of better words. Dornish Dame says, I think his time at the Erie, which didn't have a heart tree, made Ned appreciate the difficulty of moving far from home without the comfort of being able to properly practice your religion. That's a very good point. I think this is actually something I have on the list of topics to cover at some point is, is the Ned education, <laughs> which is Ned's upbringing, which I do think this is a hugely relevant por- part of that. Yeah, Ned the was raised the Ned education. Yeah, he was raised in the Vale, a big portion of it, away from his rooted culture, the place he came from, because the, the werewolves don't take root. Ha! 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really wonder. And Sansa's going through that now too. So it's like she's sort of following in her father's footsteps in a, in a way. In a way, it's very different because she's not allowed to be Sansa. <laughs> she's yeah. Elaine. <laughs> she's hiding who she really is. So it, it's still formative, but it's not, not exactly the same as, as Ned being raised openly by the Lord of the Vale. All right, let's talk about Brandon the Boisterous. We're well on track here. We're, we've got 11 Stark Lords to talk about, and we're on the second one. <laughs> we're not actually sure Brandon the Boisterous was Torin's son. It's just really, really likely there's a chance it wasn't, given that Torin had several sons. We don't hear anything about any of them dying. There wasn't any war for them to die in, unless some of them went off with the Company of the Rose. But if they had joined the Company of the Rose, that they wouldn't have refused to go to the wedding. They would have been a foregone conclusion that they weren't coming. They're like, well, we don't even know where you are to invite you to the wedding. You're somewhere in Essos with a sellsword company. And whichever of them was set to inherit Winterfell, I seriously doubt that Stark was like, no, I'm not doing it. Like, no, he still wanted to inherit Winterfell, whoever he was. So it was probably this guy, probably this Brandon the Boisterous. It's possible, though, that this was a grandson. But without the timeline, we, we just can't be sure. Nina says, This Brandon, being a son of Torrin, might explain why he had the nickname of the Boisterous. According to Yandel, some of Torrin's sons entertained talk of rebelling and of raising the Stark banner, whether Lord Torrin consented or not. The dictionary definition of Boisterous is noisy, turbulent, wild, which is pretty much what we were saying. Like, yeah, this, that fits really well with him being one of the outspoken, like, this was a mistake, father. This is, you know, anti-Northern, whatever. Of course, Brandon's the most common it might be the most common name in all of the song of ice and fire westeros period because <laughs> there's so many brandons and other names aren't quite as repeated as often there might be more pates but not among noblemen <laughs> there's definitely not there's a lot of agons but i don't think there's, i was gonna say agons got to be a contender i don't know if there's as many agons as brandon is up there though yeah <laughs> i mean i think there'd be there would be a lot more common brandons too than common agons so i think Ag- i think brandon has to win very handily there yeah and also there were brandons like well before there were agons there's like thousands of years of agons yeah. today or brandon yeah, i was gonna say yeah. brandons have been around longer to have their sons named after yeah. than agons good, right yeah, yeah. very true very true so this Brandon the Boisterous was also Warden of the North. It was effectively a hereditary title. But as we'll see, the Starks seem to have, until Cregan, the one who's Lord at the beginning of the dance and a little bit before it, until him, none of these Starks inherit Winterfell under age. They're all adults at the time they inherit. And some of them are like well into adulthood. A couple of them are, are seemingly old which implies there was a robust number of Starks in this era. There's always an older Stark around. They weren't short on Starks. You don't have situations like Rob inheriting it until we get to Cregan, of course, or other situations where it's just some young girl inheriting and you know they don't know what to do about that. That just didn't happen, apparently. Or if they did, they kept it so quiet that it's not in the historical record. And it must have been so hard for them to figure out what to do <laughs> if a girl was going to inherit it, right? <laughs> It's a weird, complicated thing to do. I don't know how they, what kind of solution can you come up with? (laughs) (laughs) So he had at least two sons. One of the younger sons fathered the line that Lenara Stark is born into. Lenara is going to marry back into the main line several generations later. Kind of like how eventually Ned's father, Rickard, married a Stark as well, who was his cousin from a separate Stark branch. What that tells us now is there's at least two branches of Starks at this point going forward until at least that point. And Lenara's 
marriage is after the dance. So we're recovering a lot of time. That, that's a, a, over 130 years of there being at least two Stark branches. So that's, that's really important to note that there's a lot of Starks. Lenara might have been like a fifth cousin when she remarried into, that, into the, the main Stark line by the time that happened. So it's possible that there's just like there quite a lot of Starks. Nina wonders as well, we don't know how much we can or should attribute the size of the family to the after effects of the conquest. Like, was it the, was the peace? Did that ensure there were more Starks? That the, the fact that there was less like barter squabbles or the, the king's peace, did that actually help? Did that ensure that there were more Starks around? Did that, as it did per, potentially in other regions? After all, in the past, the Starks were large enough to branch out. Cadet branches like Gray Stark and Car Stark happened, right? But those, no, neither of those were recent, but they had happened. So there had been times of excess Starks before. So who knows? Opening up to marriages and houses outside the North, even that's got to be a boon to the potential for bigger families and more children and such. So. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And the, the extra connectivity to the South. Yeah, there's more options. And, and I believe the Starks were gaining wealth through this arrangement because of the enhanced trade and opportunities for such and, and things like that. Could be wrong because they would have had to pay some to Aegon, perhaps, but I'm not sure they had to pay taxes to the crown. I'm not sure how that, it's not entirely clear how that all works. They know they ideally have to send men when, when called on it, but I'm not sure. They don't, they're not always paying regular taxes to the king. I know that the lower lords are paying to the high lords, but some of this stuff is un explain to us. And it, and it probably wasn't always the same. It probably changed. Yeah. I mean, just think how much of a boon it is to not have to fend off Iron Islanders, not having parts of your population be massacred and, and their resources and homes being destroyed and stolen. And it's resources you have to like divert there to try to stop that from happening instead of farming your own lands. Like if a government, if a king is doing a good job, the there should be more stability. There, there should be more wealth. Everyone should be better off and growing. So I would I think it's a safe assumption. Yeah, it's a really good point, Sean. Actually, if we frame it in modern terms, it's like, well, what if you just reduce the military budget by 20% or 30%? Like in yeah. the US, that's a monstrous amount of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like in this, it's still, even for the Starks, it would have been a substantial amount. Probably not as much <laughs> as the US <laughs> military budget, but it's nothing is as yeah, much as the US military It's funny because it's true. And, <laughs> but it just goes to show like military budgets, there's so much that goes into it. You know, ships, men, And they food. don't produce anything. Yeah. Well, the only thing they really produce theoretically, is stability, yeah, right? right? That's like, Which is theoretically, valuable, yeah. we have this army and so you're not attacking us. Or when you attack us, we fight you all so you don't burn down all our fields or whatever. And that's valuable, but it doesn't actually make stuff. And so if the... It prevents loss. Cons- yeah. Right, right. If the consolidation of power and the stability of dragons and whatever else limits the amount of destructive war that's happening, well, then all the money that was being spent on that is instead being spent on productive stuff and that value can, over years and generations, you know, mushrooms to even greater amounts. Yeah, you're right, because it's not just the, the people at the top that see that benefit. The people at the bottom, like, yeah, their food isn't getting stolen by the Ironborn or, or whatever. Their raiders, is, they have more safety and stability. They have more money in their pocket. It's not just like the military budget is slashed. It's like taxes were cut. Everyone saw it's like the, It's like as yeah. if the trickle-down effect were reliable instead of sometimes reliable. <laughs> Instead of rebuilding your house that the Iron Islanders burned down, you're b- building a new house for yeah. your brother. You're building a new 
barn to hold more horses. Your the horses that weren't killed in the battle have had new, you know, colts that have grown up and they need a new state. Everything just grows more exponential. More yeah, you're right. It, when it, it's it, not right, it's exponential when it's not being destroyed or when the resources aren't being used just to stop it from being destroyed, the resources are used to foster its growth. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like you get to reinvest your growth instead of just surviving on what you have. It's like, oh, we have a little mm-hmm. extra to, to grow on rather than just enough to get by. Uh, I think most people out there can sympathize with that basic concept of like thriving versus surviving. Like, oh, there's a lot more people are going to be thriving under this system than just getting by or, or not even getting by. So that that's really big. And that's going to, there might be still be some resentment over the pride thing, but some people would be like, take stock. Things are better now, you know, <laughs> but they might not because it's such a gradual thing. You know, it's hard to tell like how they credit some of these changes or yeah, it's not entirely clear, but we can look at it from, from a high view and and get a pretty a pretty good sense that it was, yeah, it was probably very positive for the most part all around, with some exceptions, I'm sure. Look at that. We can quickly move on to the next one already. The third Lord of Winterfell, Roderick Stark, probably around the end of Aegon's reign, maybe still in Aegon's reign, maybe early in Aenys' reign. He's probably the one we know the least about, although there's a couple more down the line that we know very little about. But there's things we can tell about this time period, especially if this is an accurate guess roughly when we were in the Targaryen timeline. Okay, so consider the idea we threw up before, which was that maybe they bent the knee to bide their time and find an opportunity to break free again. Like, well, maybe when Aegon the Conqueror dies, once he's out of the picture, this formidable leader is out of the way and we can break free. That makes some sense. Or maybe they wait for, surely this gigantic black dragon will eventually die. Because Balerion is particularly huge. And I've written elsewhere about how I think, give Aegon a different dragon. I'm not sure the conquest works. Balerion was just so, so overwhelming. I mean, the, the lesson of Harrenhal, melting the stones of Harrenhal. Vagar couldn't do that. Maybe later, but not at this time. That dragon's been around a hundred some years at this point. Maybe, maybe he'll just die at some point. Maybe then we'll rise up. Things like... One or two of these factors could have been on their mind. And Torrin did his job when he was called on to send ships to fight the sisters and the Iron Men. We don't hear about much need after that. It seems pretty straightforward for the rest of Aegon's rule, which was from 1 to 36, or early 37, the date's a little off. People just didn't challenge Aegon's rule. They were just like, this guy, it's just not worth it. This guy is too formidable, too capable. Opportunity's not there. After 36 years of that, some Northerners are probably like, well, this is just how it is now. That's, 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 oh, that's like more than two generations in this era. And, but if this was the time of Aenys, when they're, because when Aenys ascended, it was the rebellion city. The moment he took the throne almost, it was like, okay, now we've got this, this kid who is weak. They, his reputation was established at that point. He was no Aegon. It's interesting that the Stark stayed put. If they had an idea to rise up, it never happened. I wonder if they just were like, the buy-in was there. They're like, this is working out. The stuff we talked about, Sean, like maybe there was some pride against it, but after 36 years, they're like, this is good. This is a good arrangement. We have trade. We have peace. We have stability. Like, why would we just for pride to throw this off? Like, even really proud people could be like, yeah, how much, how valuable is my pride exactly? <laughs> and and they didn't really give that much up either, right? They still have their religion. They still have their farms. They still, you know, all they gave up right, basically is this, this pride point. But it's a pride point that it's not like, it's not like the Stormlanders still have their 8,000 years of whatever. Like everyone gave that up. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's even and in a certain level, Dirks even still have it. Like they from the, the big picture past, they still have this pride in all these generations, eight thousand years or whatever, they still have that. They don't have it at this moment in a way, but no one else does either. It's not like someone else can lord over them. Yeah. yeah. Having been something longer than them, you know. So And that's a great point too, Sean. Like initially there was that whole slippery slope argument. Oh, what's next? What else are they going to force on us? But after 36 years, you could see, well, they didn't, they didn't They're do not going to force anything else. Yeah, on us. yeah. This is how it is. And this is over time. It's like, yeah, this is working out really well. So why would we, why would we throw that up and, and go back to white Harbor, white Harbor now, just, they must be like, we know that like literally fat and happy <laughs> the, the Manderleys even back then were, were large people. Apparently it's like a family trait they have. It's maintained itself for a long time. They're making bank. Like if, if the Lord Stark is like, okay, what do y'all think about this? Like the Manderley's probably gonna be like, it's going good. We like this. Like no, no thoughts of rebellion. Anything to steer you away from that. I mean, hey, we'll stay loyal. We're the Manderley's. If you want to go against the, the Targaryens, we'll be with you. Maybe not. But I, I like to think that the Manderley's <laughs> were that loyal because they are because of Wyman today. They're, that they're gonna do everything they can to talk them out of yeah, it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the end, they'll probably stick by their by their lord, but they're probably gonna Let's lay it all out real quick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you sure? Like, let's do the math here. <laughs> yeah. So, and in White Harbor, just the more it's established, the, like as we said earlier, by the time of the beginning of the conquest, it was it, it had been around a while. But opening up the rest of the country to it, it's probably peaking. I mean, it, it or started to peak. It's probably entered a new era of greatness, of larger resources, larger trade network, which is just going to benefit them greatly. Which is going to have effect on the rest of the North, more availability of a wider types of goods for the North, maybe cheaper goods for like the basics. It's good stuff. Lots of really positives. Why would you want to throw that off? And again, this takes us back to what the Stark's first job is. I'm sure there's some exceptions among the Stark family. It's a long ass dynasty we're talking about, <laughs> but their duty is not independence. Their number one duty is not pride. It's prepare for winter. And this is, seems to be helping. And you don't go to war lightly when winter's coming and, and it's, winter's always coming. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I really think that they just saw the writing on the wall and were like, this is good. This is better. And you can see going forward, the Starks, for the most part, stayed pretty darn loyal to the Targaryens or they stayed neutral. Those are the two general flavors of Stark behavior are loyalty and neutrality. They are rarely turn against you. Uh, I'm sure there's hmm. got to be an example here or there, but... Those filthy, disgusting neutrals. <laughs> with neutrals... <laughs> with enemies, you know where they stand. With neutrals, nothing. <laughs> Never inappropriate, to quote Zap Brannigan. He is technically the right call, technically correct, the best kind of correct. And frequently <laughs> inappropriate. Yes. <laughs> it's inappropriate to be Zap Brannigan. <laughs> This is where I want to highlight the massive changes that probably took place over just these first 30, 35 years after the conquest. The North became opened up more. A lot more Southerners going North, a lot more Northerners going South, a lot more cultural back and forth. When we think of the North in the past... Like, what do you think of? I think of the dark stuff that, like, Sir Bartimus told Davos in the wolf's den about blood sacrifice and intestines in the heart tree and Bran's visions of 
that old woman with the bronze scythe and that guy at the heart tree that he could see and taste the blood. That's the ancient North. That's creepy and mysterious and cool, but dark. This There's less of that now. And I have to think that a lot of the reason is because of this connectivity to the South, this opening up and diversity that wasn't there before, that's curbing some of the gnarliest aspects of Northern culture. The gnarly is probably too kind because this is, some of that stuff is pretty evil almost, you know? So by this time, I think they've evolved even further away from some of that. Like it's like a larger, like the, the pace of evolution in the North was at a certain rate. There were slowly less and less blood sacrifice was happening, less and less. But this just accelerated the pace of change to a higher gear. They're just like they were driving at 10 miles an hour, slowly driving away from those old practices. It takes a while to get away from that at that pace. But now they're like sprinting away from that. But the North is large. So it's still a long sprint. Because <laughs> even, even mm. now, Bruce Bolton says some of these things still happen. You're more likely to get this progressiveness, if you will, in White Harbor yeah. and Winterfell and the, the main cities, the big cities, the coastal, the border cities. But way out in the woods and the mountains, some small tribe, they don't know or care what's happening in White Harbor. They're probably still doing the blood sacrifices and have this disdain for the Southerners or whatever. But they may or may not even be affected by the Iron Islanders raiding, you know. Yeah. That's but, true. Uh, like the ones like the hill, the hill tribes don't know crap about Ironborn raids. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I bet the people who used to get raided by the Ironborn and now aren't, they're probably, yeah, this is good stuff. Yeah. yeah I like this new alliance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, uh, the, the downside, which is, this is a little off topic, is when the Ironborn did start raiding again, well, the North was like, ah, less prepared for we don't it. know what we're, yeah. yeah, we're not that good at this. Yeah. We're like, ah, shoot. <laughs> this is, <laughs> dang it. We need, uh, we need help. Yeah, that, that's that's much later, but it was a real problem for a while when the Ironborn got back to it. What we're seeing is the, this gradual evolution. And as we move forward in time and, and talk about more and more of these lords of the North, we'll see even greater evolution away from some of these old beliefs. Each generation would become more and more resigned to this being the future, to this not being a temporary thing. This is not uh, the North belonging to the greater Westeros isn't temporary. I think some of them probably thought that it would be. But as each year passes, as the idea of independence fades more and more, this is the new normal. And that's, but that's a huge change after 8,000 years or 4,000 years or whatever. A new normal after, I mean, in our lives, in, in the world right now, we've adjusted to a new normal in the PC era, not, not political correctness. I mean, post-COVID. <laughs> I mean, we're not actually post-COVID. I mean, because COVID isn't over. But I mean, like, after COVID started, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. this is a new normal now. There's certain things that change. And if, I don't know if they've changed forever, but they might. Some of these, it's kicked off things that will probably be semi-permanent. There are some things that are maybe not as apparent to everyone, which would have been the case in Winterfell or, you know, that this world Martin has in his time too. There are certain infrastructures that are built. Right. There's certain like uh, docks at White Harbor that may that mm -hmm. in the beginning weren't there and took resources and time. But once they're built, now ships just come and go all the time. And the people of the realm get the benefit of those ships coming and going all the time. And uh, they, they don't necessarily know, you know, someone in the hill tribe that suddenly has a fresh supply of cotton or whatever doesn't necessarily understand the infrastructure built in White Harbor that came from a stability given by Aegon enabled all that, right? But it's still there for them. We don't necessarily know all the infrastructure that's been built in labs so that 
the next time they need a vaccination, they can make a million of them a day all of a sudden. Whereas when COVID came out, they didn't have a lab built yet. You know, yeah, so that's true. There will be these values we get from infrastructures that come down the line that we don't necessarily understand all of it, but it is there now. So. Yeah, it provides a floor to build on top of. You're right. Like there and there yeah. and it's like at this point, the floor of north south connection was very minimal. There was not, hardly anything there. It wasn't nothing. It's not like the north was completely isolated, but it went from very isolated to gradually less isolated over this time. And this is the largest period of growth until a part we're going to get to a little later, which I think kicked that off even more, which is the King's Road. But we're not there yet. Our next Lord is Brandon the Boastful. Yes, another Brandon. Yes. And similar to the Boisterous, the Boastful. Not quite the same. Boast, boasting isn't the same as Boisterous. There's a little overlap there. They're both talkative. They're both outspoken. But boastful is more about what you can do, and boisterous is more about other stuff. How much noise you can make yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little less specific. Boastful is a little more, a little more personal. You can be professional and calm and boastful. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you can be boisterous and self-deprecating. You yeah. Know? You can say very little, but the few things you say are, are promoting yourself. <laughs> Self-promoting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He never talks, but when he does, he says, I'm great. <laughs> One good thing about boasting and boisterousness is the outspokenness. It's kind of a good thing from a historical perspective. Like those things are a little more likely to be remembered if they're repeated loudly. You know, <laughs> it's like a little, <laughs> a little more likely someone will take note of it and write it down. So, I, I my first note of Brandon the boastful here in the, in our document is perhaps his boasting is why the records from his era are a little better than some of the others. He was old when he took office, or at least held it a long time, or both. We're not sure because the ages here are not, not clear. Again, Torin, Brandon, Roderick, and then another Brandon, this Brandon, the boastful. He died in 49 AC. So if it was even between these four lords, which of course it wouldn't be, that's roughly like 12 years each. So somehow, somewhere in there. But the reason we know he was old when he took office, without knowing exactly when he took office, was because... He went to the golden wedding and he was quoted as saying when he met Jaehaerys, who became Jaehaerys the conciliator. This is when Jaehaerys was young. He said, I see his grandsire in him. So Brandon the Boastful knew Aegon the Conqueror. He was alive during and he had, had met him unless he was being overly boastful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I didn't, it's like, you didn't meet Aegon. What are you talking it's about? like, you were three. You don't remember him. Yeah. <laughs> I see his son. He's like, dude, you're eight. he's been talking like that ever since he was a toddler Uh, he's got the werewood network in his head or something real quick what's the golden wedding I'm about to tell you Um, so being alive during Aegon's reign having met him assuming he wasn't being boastful meant he saw the rebellion against Magor which good example of well first of all the, the rebellion against Magor wasn't really a rebellion it was like everybody realized Magor was done and that was it so it was a really quick thing, but the Starks had nothing to do with it, partly because there was no time. But maybe it would have been interesting to see what they did had it been a more drawn out thing. There were, there were some Northerners involved in fighting for Aegon the Uncrowned against Magor, but that's, we, we have very little detail on that. There may have been you know, Starks there too, but since we only hear about these others and not the Starks, I assume they weren't. Anyway, the point there is that the Starks were able to witness what was going on in the South and potentially stay out of it because of the same reasons they wouldn't want to be involved in any other war. You know, why lose men when winter is coming? So 
the golden wedding was in 49 AC. It was between Alyssa and Rogar Baratheon. Rogar Baratheon was hand of the king. Alyssa was former wife of King Aenys. And when Aenys died, she eventually remarried. And she's the mother of Jaehaerys and Alysan and all these other people. So big deal. She's also the, the regent. So very important person. And the saga of Rogar and Alyssa is really interesting. But it's outside the scope of this. So the wedding was called the Golden Wedding because it was ridiculously opulent. It was so fancy and expensive. Vermithor and Silverwing showed up with Alisan and Jaehaerys on their backs. They just rode in to great pomp and circumstance, like arriving late to make an effect. Picture yourself as a, as a hard, stern northern lord traveling south for this wedding. You've mm-hmm. never seen or heard of something like this wedding. It's probably the fanciest wedding in the history of Westeros, period. Unless you maybe you have to go to bygone eras that we're not, we have little record of. Like it's, it's quite possibly the fanciest wedding ever in Westeros. Some or other fancier wedding wouldn't have had any dragons. Yeah, true, true. Mm-hmm. So might have had more gold or whatever, but the, the, the dragons are more impressive. It takes a lot of gold to outweigh the impressiveness of dragons. That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jaehaerys and Alysanne, I mean, Jaehaerys and Alysanne were basically eloped, so they didn't, they didn't have a formal wedding, so they didn't have a big fancy wedding like this. But just, it's wild to think about, like, the Starks going like, what is this? is such, this is wasteful. You know, they were like, wow, these, these people are really something else. But uh, an interesting thing is he wasn't there by himself. He brought 12 lords, and interestingly, he brought 30 members of the Night's Watch, which... I wonder about that. Why did he bring members of the night? I really wonder about that. I'm curious about that. Maybe he could put them in front of all these wealthy people to remind them that they exist and say, look, you all should, everyone should be supporting the wall. Like this is, we're all one realm now. That's my best guess. I don't know. Nina says maybe their attendance can be compared to say the Night's Watch recruiter who attended the tourney of Harrenhal. Maybe he, yeah, maybe he's down there recruiting. Maybe some of these 30 guys or some, maybe... Some of them were recruiters and they just brought some extras along because it's a big party and you want to have numbers. But yeah, I think recruiting is possible. A thing we'll come back to is the Night's Watch was in decline after the conquest. It's severe decline. With all one downside to peace is that it was a recurring thing that when two kingdoms went to war, the losing side would have a bunch of its men sent to the wall. This is not happening anymore. That's a, it's a good thing that people aren't fighting, but on the, this is the one downside. And so this has caused the watch's decline because instead of a, a steady stream of soldiers on the losing side mixed with prisoners who are condemned for serious offenses, it's a lot more of the latter, a lot more criminals, a lot fewer of these, you know, soldiers on the losing side. So it's just a, the whole organization starts to decline in quality and in total manpower. So it's both, both these things are an issue. So there's a lot of reasons to wonder about the Night Watch's, Night's Watch's presence there in, in, in light of these developments. One thought I had is I wonder how many, I'm a little less certain about this thought after what you just now said, but how many of them are people who would have been invited to this wedding if they weren't at the wall? You know, oh, the yeah. second sons of noble families would normally have been present for this big wedding fest, festival or whatever, but 
maybe he wanted to make a point of still having them take part, still including yeah. the members of the noble families that were on the wall for one reason or another, still should be present for this event. And also, like, it's often how weddings go. Well, if you have to invite this person, we kind of have to invite this person. <laughs> but if they're going, well, then you kind of have then, you know. That's yeah, awesome. that's true. And that's a very good point, Sean. And, and they would want to be well represented. They would want to bring people that, like, represent the Night's Watch well, that make it look formidable that make it look like it's something worth joining. Yeah. So that, that kind of speaks more to the recruiting effort. I like that idea a lot. He brought his sons, Walton and Alaric as well, both of whom will be Lords of Winterfell. So they were also witness to all this at a younger age. Alaric is going to prove to be particularly thrifty. He's going to be maybe not a miser, but close to that. Like it's, it's a reputation he had. And then Alisanne will go there and talk to him and, and, tell her people that it's an undeserved reputation. He's just smart with money. He's, he's, not, he's just not a big spender. It's not like he's a miser. He's not, you know, overly aggressive that way. He's just thoughtful with his money. So, you know, things getting out of hand. But maybe, like, seeing stuff like this might have had an impression on him as a young man. Like, this is just absurd. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to spend <laughs> like this. I, I, you know, this is money that could be put to building ships and build, or building ports or infrastructure, things that, like... Roads. Yeah, things that have yeah, recurring libraries. Value. Yeah, yeah, not stuff that's just a one-off for a party, right? So it's really got to... I got to think this left some kind of impression. It may not have permanently altered how they saw the South, but it might have. It might have been like, jeez, what is... This is just absurd and insane. And maybe they just liked it a lot. I mean, like, there's enough of them there. Some of them probably was a variety of opinions. But I feel like the Northerners would have... A lot of them would have kind of looked down on it. Like, this is just too much excess. This is too, this is too outside. This makes them uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> this is outside their sensibilities. I don't know. Y'all feel free to... To, as always, feel free to weigh in with your own takes here because we're doing this. A lot of this is guesswork. You know, we're, we're not, we, we don't, we can't assume how people would feel. You know, there is another consideration to it that maybe even along the lines, like I think Tywin had this idea of like to show off the wealth to kind of like make it clear how powerful you are. And, uh, and maybe you can go too far with that. Like maybe like, you're powerful now, but it's not going to last with the way you're wasting it all. Yeah, but, uh, right. <laughs> uh, there's an anecdote. I don't remember his name, but uh, one of the undersecretaries of uh, Gorbachev during the Soviet time period that was meeting with, I think it was Reagan's secretary of state. And, and like in his office, he started to write something and a pen ran out of ink and he just threw it in the trash and got another one. And this Russian, you know, this is like a high level mm-hmm. Russian official like, you just throw the pen. You don't try hard to get more ink out. Like to him, it's like it, it. Like there's no way we can beat them. They have so many resources. They could just throw pens away. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can imagine on some level in the north, they're like, man, they could really just send nonstop armored troops with swords after us. They have so much wealth. Yeah. You know, it, it, whether they mean to or not, there is this sort of implication of power when you can waste that much money at a wedding, what kind of an army could you raise? Now, maybe the soldiers won't be that tough, you know, maybe the, but anyway, I can see the impacts of witnessing that something like this, how it might affect your opinion of the South, how you manage your own resources and so Good on. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they see it as excess or wasteful or as well, like, yeah. Or, or they see the other side of it. What if they funneled all this into an army that would be formidable? That's a very good point, Sean. It's like, it's not, it's not a guarantee they're going to keep spending their money this way. Also, this might speak to the same concept we discussed for the North, how the peace brought them more wealth. You're like, well, what are we going to spend it on? Well, in this case, a big fancy wedding. Of course, this is a, you know, Alyssa Valarian, who is basically the mother of these Targaryens at this point. This is the royal family and House Baratheon, which is the cl- at this point the closest, even more than the Valarians were at this point, tied to the Targaryens because Boris Baratheon was their 
who's a Targaryen half-brother. Nina makes a really good point here. Brandon the Boastful, if not him, then his sons would have been the first ones born after the conquest, meaning they would be the first ones to have no direct memory of the time when they were kings. It would be all just word of mouth to them. The others have lived through the Starks being kings. Now we're transitioning away from that where it becomes a memory. It's like, okay, well, now my father was a lord. His father was a lord. His father was a lord. His father was a king. So it's still there, but it's, it's fading farther and farther into memory and becoming less and less important, more, more a thing of their ancestors, less a thing that they were personally connected to. So that grasp is, is falling off. Nina also suggests that maybe that's one of the things he was boastful about, that the Targaryens spent so much time in the North. They did all those progresses up there. They paid so much attention to the North because it's important. It's like, yeah, look, look how much time the Conqueror spent up with us in our region because you know how important we were. He saw our worth. You know, there's things... There's, I like this idea and, and I, like the, I like the process of thinking of what kind of things he might be boastful about, like keeping it within the frame of reference of what we know. Or boasting about maybe he's taking credit for the, the, <laughs> the uptick in wealth in the North. It's like, we're doing so much better now and he's unable to properly credit where that's coming from. <laughs> Who knows? Now that I'm king, look how well off yeah. we are. Never mind, yeah. Or Lord, I guess, now that I'm Lord. Yeah. It's like taking credit. It's like presidents do that all the time. It's like, look how great the economy yeah. is. It's like, you're predecessor did that like or the his predecessor infinite did that. factors around the world did yeah. that or just one little piece of yeah, yeah politicians <laughs> taking credit for things they didn't do and and not taking blame for things they did do is <laughs> no one needs to have no one needs to hear that concept We're like yep yeah, we all know that happens i'm sure it happened here too <laughs> to some way or another yeah and yeah that is a thing to be proud of like Aegon did six progresses to the north. Three times he went to White Harbor, twice to Barrington, once to Winterfell. That's a lot. I mean, that's, he was constantly on the road. Like he did that a lot, but still six times to the north. I mean, each of these is like months and months, if not years. So yeah, it's a good sense. Good thing to, to talk about. And again, the neutrality comes up here. This is something I, I brought up earlier. It comes up here again. All the important reasons to stay neutral. We've covered a lot of them, which is, you know, if you lose men at war, well, you, that's going to impact your ability to bring in the harvest. On the other time, on the other hand, rather, too many mouths to feed. What if there's an excess of men? That's when you, I don't know if you want war, but you do need something for the extra mouths to do. Maybe they can go south for some reason. Maybe they can go overseas and another sellsword company forms. But yeah, but it's a little bit of a tightrope walk. If you have too few men, it's a problem for harvest and getting all the labor that needs done. If you have too many, then then you have a problem of not enough food. So peace can bring its own problems, right, Sean? It's not all just, yay, there's no more war, so everything's great, right? The problems of war are greater than the problems of peace, yeah. but there aren't zero problems in peace. Yeah, well said. And yeah. usually managing that properly is, it, it's, it, it, I think it's easier to manage the problems of peace than war. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like it, you know, but they are substantial. It, it, like the dance of the dragon, like like as we covered in season one of House of the Dragon or that era, like we saw the problems of peace. We could see it heading towards war. Yeah. See how they kept screwing that up, or a lot of that's on Viserys's. But but still, and those are things, right? Those are things that could a good leader could have been more proactive and stopped those problems from happening. Yeah, and then even when those problems do happen, it's less likely for as many people to be unfairly punished as what ends up happening in war. It's hard yeah. to. Best proactive thing to stop the problems of war is just have good defenses up. You know what I mean? Like, but, yes. Um, good point. Yeah. 
So there may have been times where the Starks were willing to send an army south to reduce the number of mouths they had to feed, or they may not have because they may have been reluctant to because they needed that labor to survive. They need to strike that balance. Regardless of whether that is as prime a factor as we've laid it out to be, the Starks of the era from AC1 to AC129 largely stayed out of affairs of the South. There's very little we can cite as Southern uh, Northern armies going South, getting involved just a little bit here and there, but mostly it's individual cases. It's not armies. Nina says, it's also just a major undertaking. If the South fights a war that's one year long, heck, the North takes months just to get its armies together. Like by the time they get all that done, the war, it might be half decided or foot. And then they have to march all the way down. It's not like they're right there. <laughs> gotta march and they back. have to march back when it's over, too. Yeah. Like, that's another thing, too. It's like, even if they wanted to be more proactively involved, by the time they get the forces together and send them down, the conflict might be over. So they have to, it has to be a prolonged conflict for them to even be able to make a difference in it. And it's hard to know at the beginning if it's going to be prolonged. So I can see a lot of reasons aside from like, strategic decisions of leaders that they might still, you know, like a sort of like a, a policy of like, we don't want to lose our soldiers in your war. Yeah. Uh, even aside from that, even someone who was ex- some warmonger who wanted to g- get involved, it's like, all right, all right, call the banner, send them down there. And they get down there and it's already over. Like, all right, well, I guess we'll go back home. I, you know, I don't know if it's likely, but I can imagine there might be moments when they did try to get involved yeah. and just it, it didn't matter. It, it didn't make the history books. It wasn't enough to get recorded in history or be a story that Martin has shared with us, but it easily could be the case. They're just too far away to, to have an impact. Like, look what mm-hmm. happens in A Song of Ice and Fire. Rob leaves behind the Hill Clansmen, which are there for Stannis to go recruit later because he didn't have time. They're, he knew that would take longer. Mm-hmm. They, would, they would be the, some of the slowest and would maybe need personal touch to get them moving. Didn't have time for that. You know, this stuff was happening right then because it was, that was more urgent because their own people were threatened. Like, Ned was was uh, this was before he was executed but he was a prisoner and they had Sansa and Arya so there was their own people were at risk so this is a bit different it's more valuable to get there in 4 days with 10,000 troops than to get there in 8 days with 12,000 troops yeah yeah know? that kind of thing exactly the, the time was very much of the essence there so Nina writes that that doesn't mean the Starks aren't willing to march south it just means that they have other considerations and there's no chance for them to do it as quickly, even if, they, even if they're moving as quickly as they can. It's going to take longer than a lot of the other regions, if not the longest. That's a motivation to get the King's Road built, by the way. Good point. Very good point. Jaharis, I don't know that Jaharis mentioned that when he was building it, but you're totally right, that the King's Road would make it vastly easier for the armies to march south, especially armies. Like it, for, it makes trade and regular walking easier. But for an mm-hmm. army that... Think about like Daenerys on the march with her Kalisar. Like she's in the front where it's nice and clean, but when she looks behind, it's just this mass of dirt and grime and the people at the back choked by dust and there's the footprints. Everyone's like depressions in the ground. There's grooves from the wheels. It's really hard. And something else... It, 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 we just don't, in modern times, we just don't have a concept of how much horse poop was everywhere yeah, back then. Yeah, it would have been you know? And not just horses, right? All the other pack animals and, and animals that are, that they're bringing along to eat along the way, the pigs and chickens and whatever else they brought, goats. Yeah, just... Like, even in relatively more modern times in a city, like, you know, no, not modern times today, but when they were writing the Constitution. Yeah. They, it was in the summer and it was hot. And so they wanted to open the windows 
But they decided to keep them closed anyway because it stank like horse poop. <laughs> the city streets of Philadelphia were covered with horse yeah, poop. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, just look at what it looks like at the after of any, like, music festival. The footage of what it's like afterwards. Like, look at Woodstock in the 60s or look at, like, Burning Man. Now, it's just a, it's just a mess. There's <laughs> just so much stuff. And, and we, we get better footage of it these days because of drones can fly over it and see. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> Before, you just see a ground level and you can't fully see how stretched out it is. But from above, it's like, geez. And these are smaller groups than an army would represent a lot of times. Because, yeah, you see an army of 20,000 men. It's 20,000 soldiers. There's probably another 10,000 just cooks, grooms, blacksmiths, sex workers, kids that are born on the march, just all sorts of hangers on. People managing the horses and everything. But like I said, even though the Starks seemed to stay neutral, I said before that there were some people who fought in some of these few engagements in the South. The guy who fought against Magor for Aegon the Uncrowned, that was Dennis Snow. He was the bastard of Barrowton. So he would have been a member of House Dustin, but a, a bastard member. He died, though, in that war in the year 43. Too bad for him. Yeah, so Nina continues here her thoughts on the the loyalty and the the deployment issues, even though the Targaryens had it substantially easier than the Starks in terms of travel, because of dragons, their courtiers still had to ride over. Like, and the Targaryens bring their court, like that's got to follow behind them by horse and by cart and all that. But that's still closer than Winterfell or White Harbor. Pretty much anywhere they're going, unless they're going north. So if the Targaryens are willing to go north for all those progresses, the Starks should be willing to go south for things like these weddings, right? That just makes it like, that's just like back and forth. That's reciprocation, you know, basic, not rudeness. <laughs> Question was whether oh. any Valyrians or Targaryens had ever thought about using their dragons as like a convoy, as a, to, to transport goods, like to bring in reinforcements or resources, yeah. stuff like that, like strapping a package to the dragon's leg or whatever. We don't have any examples of that. It sounds like maybe no, but I wonder, I wonder if it was possible. Maybe they just couldn't bring enough for it to to be relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Just true. Just a few That's packs true. of food. Like, what good is that? Yeah, well, what good is that? I mean, I'm picturing like air reinforcements, like bringing in like a crate of goods. Dropping yeah. a crate of dragonglass arrowheads on Yeah, it is like my, my <laughs> imagination of it is the idea of that. It's kind of because I'm also picturing all those like straps that we saw hanging off of Vagar. Yeah, all those ropes. Yeah. All those ropes hanging off of Vagar in House of the Dragon. And I'm like, you could just tie some things to those ropes and like you have some goods. I was just thinking about the idea of how dragons could be used like as like air assault, maybe not airborne, maybe there aren't enough dragons for an airborne operation, but air assault, like where they could just squads of eight troops could just be brought in, you know, dropped into a castle or uh, to a bridge or something to secure it or sabotage something. And think how quick a dozen or so troops took off on horse and just were going as fast as they could. And when they got there, armor was waiting for them, mm-hmm. you know, that a dragon had already dropped That's off. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah, I feel like you could, a really good thinker, a really good Targaryen or Valyrian thinker could like really use dragons in for combat purposes in a way that isn't just about strafing them with fire and like all that. Might yeah. Be a, yeah. yeah uh, that might even uh, ironically be a better use for the smaller ones because like if you're yeah. just bringing like small amounts of equipment, the smaller ones could handle that and True. Because the big ones, they don't you, have to expose themselves to danger. They don't need to breathe fire or anything, but they could still get equipment yeah, the, to key spots ahead of time outside of danger. It seems like the big ones, it's a waste of them, their capacity to just be carrying stuff when they could be the most vital parts of the actual attacking and defending. They could also be multi purpose, I suppose. 
We, I mean, we talked in the before about them being, you know, road makers about building the dragon roads. Like, you just got dragons on the road crew. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it seems like, talk about not the most proud use of a dragon is making roads, but hey, those roads are... Yeah, I see Jamie important. Har here says, a dragon is not a stagecoach. Maybe it is a respect <laughs> Dragon is no stage yeah. coach. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine all this resistance to it, all this like dragons are worth more than that, and they're, that's beneath it. But then once someone started doing it, I think everyone would come around like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> that really works. That's really good. We build that road in one week instead of four months. You know? <laughs> think how long it would take to people with axes chopping trees, trying to level off an area, drag it just one strife down, just yeah. burn the clear path. Yeah. <laughs> These dragons' jobs. Yeah, dragons with jobs. <laughs> Dogs with jobs is a, yeah. is a great like Instagram account, I think, and Twitter yeah. account. Dragons with jobs. Yeah. Yes. They're usually their job is killing, but... <laughs> yeah, that's why it will stop them from killing so much. <laughs> yes, dragons with different jobs. Okay, folks, let's let's call it a wrap there. We got through four of our 11 Stark Lords. We will... What year are we in? We are roughly in the year 49. Okay, so I didn't finish... Actually, forgot the, the footnote on Brandon the Boastful was he was old and in ill health when he went to the Golden Wedding. So ill health that the trip back finished him off. He died like shortly after returning. And Walton Stark took over. So we'll pick up with Walton next time. This is the year 50. Walton is the year 50 AC. So we have a very pretty distinct time. We know exactly where we are for once. As we move forward here, well, we do have a better idea of a lot of the dates as we get closer and closer to, to Cregan, who is the last one. We have still to come after Walton, Alaric Stark, who is probably the one we know the most about besides Cregan, but we're not going to go through all of Cregan's life because Cregan's life goes during the dance and we're not going to get into that because we're covering the dance so much elsewhere. Edric Stark is after Alaric. Then Elard Stark. Elard's the one who was at the Great Council. He's the one that, that gave his word at the Great Council. Next was Benjen Stark and then Rickon Stark. Rickon Stark's the one we saw at House of the Dragon actually kneel when the decision was made to name Rhaenyra heir. Whereas Elard's the one who voted at the Great Council. And Benjen was lord for very briefly in between them. Then we have Cregan. So that's seven more Lord Starks we have to call, talk through. Some really fun stuff that's going to happen. We have the an uh, uprising at the Night's Watch that was started by people who were sent to the wall under Magor. Some of people who used to work for Magor and some of them were people who were against Magor. This is the huge influx of new blood at the Watch. Didn't work out so well. Alaric Stark is a really amazing time. We get to talk about Alisan and Robert and Ned vibes. We've got some quotes from him. He's one of the few ones that we actually have quotes from. And we get to talk about more about the decline of the watch and how this the progression of things really changed that. And Alisan, of course, did the, the new gift and Queen's Crown, uh, Queen's Gate, rather. And then beyond that, we have fun things like the Dance of the Direwolves, which was the mini succession crisis that happens right before the Dance of the Dragons. So that's cool. It was like a setup, sort of like what happened with House Valarian and Sir Vaymond. A little bit of a, who actually deserves this? Circumstances were a little different, but there's a lot in common with that. Let's see a couple of last comments from y'all. The trivia question, of course, we can't forget about that. Northern Warrior from the dance era called Mad Hal Hornwood. House Hornwood. Mad Hal Hornwood. Hornwood's one of the more prominent, maybe second tier house, not quite as strong as Bolton or, or Manderley. Maybe roughly on the level of Karstark-ish, I think. 
maybe umber in that in that zone. Tough and longstanding. Mad Hal Hornwood. So I hope he gets I hope he's in House of the Dragon. We'll see. But but just random warriors maybe won't make it in, even though he was particularly notable. We'll see. Can you think of another Hornwood off the top of your head? Another noteworthy Hornwood from history of Western? Well, there's poor, sad uh, Danella Hornwood, who was born a Manderley, the one that Ramsey forcibly marries and she eats her own fingers off. But there's also Hallie's Hornwood, not to be confused with Hallis, Mad Hal, Hallis. There's Hallis and Hallis. There's L-Y-S and L-I-S. Uh, Hallis Hornwood is the one that was killed at the Battle of the Green Fork, which was probably what Roose Bolton engineered because Bolton pretty soon started sending his men into Hornwood to try to grab some of their territory. And that was part of what Ramsey was doing back home while Roos was mm. doing his business in the South, squandering the Northern armies while keeping his own intact. Roos did that very cleverly. Dom Tartali, our friend, shout out Dom and Folkwise YouTube channel says, Sean Mad Hal Max is from the Stormlands and the words of House Max are, ours is the Fury Road. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Well played, Dom. (laughs) Also worth saying, I think, Sean, you're fine to look back at our chat again this now, like for these episodes. For for people who weren't aware, Sean had been in the habit of going back and reading the chat. And sometimes people would say things to Sean in the chat. But during House of the Dragon season, it was it's been too hard for me to have a hard line about spoilers like that. So Sean has made the decision to to step back and to not spoil himself and sully himself. But anyways, I, I suppose my point is that you're fine to read all the comments again. Yeah. So make those comments, y'all. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Talk make to those Sean comments. in the chat. Yeah. Say nice <laughs> things to Sean. Or mean things. Don't read them all. <laughs> Same. We mentioned our episode on House Dustin, the Barrow Kings. That's definitely related to some things we talked about this one. Even more related is our episode called Before the Dragons, which we did a couple months before House of the Dragon. That was what Westeros was like just before the conquest. This is, of course, focused on the North after the conquest, but it slides right in there timeline-wise. It just follows up on that nicely. And even though we didn't get as far as we could have today. We aren't in a rush. (laughs) There's no reason to speed through these things. We want to discuss them thoroughly, have a great time along the way. And we've got 79 more years to discuss in this era. So we'll pick that back up. (laughs) What? I mean, I just... You said we've got 79 more years to discuss, and I thought you meant that we ourselves had 79 <laughs> more years of our lives. So I was like, that's a very hyper-specific number. Until the year 2201. Yeah. That's That's when we'll be finished with this. <laughs> <laughs> so check out that one. Check out our the, the Barrow Kings episode. A lot of our Fire and Blood coverage episodes will overlap with some of this, and we'll be raising new topics as we finish this out next time. Check out Sean on Twitter at Dancing Sean, right? What a, we're going to be seeing you at the GotCon in LA. Which, by the yeah, way, folks, yeah. they just announced that Patty Considine, Matthew Needham, and Steve Toussaint are going to be there. That's that's that was news to us yeah, as of a few days ago. Yeah, that's Viserys, Corlys, and Laris. Yeah, which is pretty so cool. Three. Uh, Three YS guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. These, uh, Viserys and Laris. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason they were chosen. No one else yeah. was able to come. They they totally could have had Alicent, but her name is an Alicentis. Easy. Yeah, it was so. just easy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so if you're planning or thinking about going to that con, we'll be there, all of us. And uh, it just got a little cooler because of that. 
Oh, we got a super chat from Jill47, just with a little thanks sticker. Thanks, Jill. Thank you, Jill. And thanks to all of you who came to watch live today or any other time. If you consume History of Westeros outside the live streams, we appreciate that too. We always thank you for listening and for participating in any way you can. If you care to support us financially, you can sign up through Spotify to do a recurring donation or on Patreon, patreon.com slash Westeros History. They're both similar. The, the, the dollar values are similar. The benefits are a little different, mostly based on what we're allowed to offer on those platforms. We would like to have it be more similar, but we're at the mercy of those platforms. They do a good job, though. We're not complaining. It's and just you know it what is else? what it is. Is coming. If you're listening to this, if you stuck around, you can know that the Dance of the Dragons Part Five has been recorded. Yeah, it our is collab with Radio soon. Westeros. Yes, that's our, our yeah our series with Radio Westeros. It is spoilery for House of the Dragon. That's for all of you book readers out there. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, I'll be editing that this week, and the audio will be out a little bit sooner, as is the norm for that. But yeah, that's your little tease there. Yeah, cool. Thanks as well to Nina for her notes. Some really good notes today, as usual. It's great to have her participation again. Thank you if you're already a subscriber to us on Patreon or Spotify. Thanks if you've left a review or shared with your friends. Word of mouth is a very powerful tool for podcasting. You are the best advocate for what you like. And that is... That's true. It can really be infectious. You know, when you really talk about something you like a lot to your friends, it really spreads. I mean, that's that's how these things work. I, I love to talk about the things I love. And a lot of times... Yeah, it brings more for, people into it. I'm, I'm, I think I'm notorious for being like a proselytizer when I'm into something. I'm like, watch the expanse, get yeah. this phone, do this. Expanse thing, definitely know? came to mind yeah. when you said that. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, but uh, yeah, I mean, if I like something, I want everyone to like it. I said, what's that tweet? It's like a meme. It's like I'm I'm the opposite of a gatekeeper. I'm a gateway or whatever. It said <laughs> like that. I, yeah. I want everyone to like the things that I like. <laughs> no gatekeeping here. So as well, I want to say thank you to Michael Klarfeld for our maps. I want to say thank you to Kevin McLeod for our intro and Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval as well for the intro music. We've got a couple different versions of it. And thanks to the Benjineer. He's back in the saddle with us now after TV season where we had to post the episodes quickly. We, they, there was less editing during the TV season because the turnaround time is so important. But these episodes, will we go back to our normal editing where I will cut little bits out here and there to tighten it up. So if you, by the way, if y'all notice differences there, I'm curious. It's, it's such a difficult thing for us to understand and, and get information on is yeah. how much you notice the difference when we edit or don't edit and how much y'all value having the video feed available on the podcast side. Yeah. We maybe should just at the certain point soon we should just run a poll and get a little bit you know quantifiable data. But if you want to give us some um, uh, qualitative data, if you want to actually just comment on a, something and tell us what you notice, if you're like, yeah, I could tell that the audio levels weren't as even during the House of the Dragon season, or no, it doesn't matter to me at all. We would really appreciate getting that because oftentimes people only say something if it's a really major problem, and yeah. that's maybe you know like we, we sometimes we need to know like no, it's a minor problem or it's not a problem at all. Y'all may not notice it always or even at all, but the podcast landscape in the back end is constantly changing. This is still a fairly new industry. And a lot of times, and there's just changing things happen a lot, whether it's on the advertising side or the technology side or anything, just any angle. 
the business is constantly evolving and we just have to evolve with it. We're not, we're not in charge of anything. We just got to ride the waves as they come. And we really value your feedback as we navigate these changes and, and what we do to, to maintain what we do can tell us we will take into account. Yeah, especially because it helps us know what we should put more time and effort into. And if it's that no one cares about really detailed audio editing, if you don't notice when we cut out us or like little things like that, then maybe we should put more time into making transcripts so that we have more accessibility. You know, you know, see what I mean? That yeah. Yeah, just just let us know. It's the wild Westeros <laughs> <laughs> for us and for y'all. So yeah, we value your feedback. We know the bottom line is is the content. The podcasts keep coming. We keep them heavily researched and fun. And that's not going to change no matter what. So regardless what else changes around the packaging. I want to make it as... That's going to be what the package is. I want to make it as least fun as I can. (laughs) Let's just make this a drag. We'll make it boring and serious and, yeah, just... uh. We started talking a little too slow and, like, randomly they sounded like nails on a chalkboard get interjected. Lots of coughing and just, like... But we still have the best content. You just have to suffer through all that. Constant clearing of throats and, yeah, just, like, sound... Yeah. We'll we'll work on our poor quality. We'll make it worse. Yeah, that's we'll come up with. We'll be the best at bad sounds. Cool. All right, everybody. Until next time, you know what to do. Valar rewatch us and Valar re read us.